and welcome to episode 47 of Screaming Through the Ages. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, and in this episode, I'm going to be continuing my Hitchcock coverage and discussing both Vertigo and North by Northwest, and I'll even have Nathan Bartlebaugh here to talk Vertigo with me. And I've also got the beginning of my Amityville franchise review, starting with the original one and giving the background and history on that one. And I also have an anniversary piece on Rosemary's Baby, which is celebrating its 55th anniversary this year. And I may have some more things in there. As always, I don't really know when I'm recording these opening segments. But for now, that's probably where it's sitting. There might be another thing thrown in, but who really knows? And before I get into my kind of warm-up segment here, I wanted to go ahead and plug something and do some housekeeping for October. October is coming up in just under a month at this point. And for October this year, I'm going to be looking into the uh, folk horror genre. So I'm going to have a wide swath of topics and segments on folk horror and it'll be very different from the Giallo shows that I did last year, but that's what I'm going to be focusing on. And you can look forward to that coming in October in a two-part episode, and maybe even a bonus episode in October as well. So if you have any folk horror movies that you're really interested in and that you love, or any topics that you're really passionate about within the folk horror genre feel free to call in and leave a voicemail or send me a recording or just drop me a message online and I will share that on the show as we go along. And I should share here because I haven't in a while that the uh, voicemail is 740-297-6556. But yeah, that's what I'm going to be talking about in October. Like I said, if you want to be part of the show, discuss any movies or topics or anything at all, send me a line and um, we'll get that included for sure. But just wanted to give a little plug there before I got into the actual episode and let you know what you can look forward to or maybe not look forward to in October. I will be suspending the Screaming Chronicles episodes until we are out into November, just because October is going to be dedicated to horror every year. But again, that doesn't mean that I won't have anything, uh, you know, game, video game related or, you know, a Screaming Chronicles related pop up in October because um, I'm working on something now to get something in on that topic. Okay, so that does it for the housekeeping. I'm going to go ahead and move in to my warm up review, which is one of the monster rankings, specifically the werewolf ranking.
But all right, with all that out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and get into a mini review here. And this is for the, you know, monster rankings. And if you'll recall back a couple episodes ago, maybe a few episodes ago, I went ahead and reviewed the Wolfman from 2010. And of course, that was my number one ranked uh, werewolf movie at that point. Well, I'm going to do a couple more werewolf movies before I move on to another monster. And this time I kind of just uh, by chance, you know, I was going to look through my watch list and see what werewolf movies I haven't seen or see which ones would make sense here. But I just kind of happened upon this one and then, you know, put it on my watch list and said, OK, it's going to be on this episode. And, you know, surprisingly not to uh, bury the lead. I didn't expect to come in with something lower than the Wolfman, but I may just have done that. So the movie I covered was from 1974, and it's called The Beast Must Die. Now, this is an amicus production, so it is out of the UK. And it was directed by Paul Annette, runs for just over an hour and a half. And the tagline is actually the first piece that you hear in this film. You know, before they get into it, it comes up on the screen and it says this tagline. Uh, One of these eight people will turn into a werewolf. Can you guess who it is when we stop the film for the werewolf break? See it? Solve it, but don't tell. So the synopsis for this one reads, Wealthy big game hunter Tom Newcliffe has tracked and killed practically every type of animal in the world. But one creature still evades him. The biggest game of all. A werewolf. All right, this is this is a ridiculous movie. And honestly, like I got very excited when they introduced the werewolf break at the beginning of this because they were promising a moment where you could solve the mystery and guess who you think the werewolf was. And I actually, you know, I got it right. I wouldn't be able to defend my position. <laughs> my position was mainly like well, it doesn't make sense for this character. Or it doesn't make sense for this character. I had no real reasons, but I did get it right at the end. But it's pretty cool. With about 15 minutes left, they stop for the werewolf break and ask you who you think it is, and they give you 30 seconds. It's a very William Castle-type gimmick that Amicus is was putting forward here. But my main problem with this, you know, you've got the guy, and our uh, our main character, Tom, is played by Calvin Lockhart, who is incredibly over the top. I mean, this guy is, yeah, he's a bit out there. No one can accuse him of not putting his all into this performance, but alongside him, you have uh, Peter Cushing, who is also a suspect. And I should say Tom and his assistants, helpers, whatever they are, I'm not sure. Uh, They're the only ones that aren't suspects in this. You have several actors here, but you have Peter Cushing as like this werewolf expert and, you know, you have other other actors like um, Charles Gray, who just looks so familiar to me, but I don't know where I've seen him before. You also have Michael Gambone, who was in the Harry Potter films, of course. And I didn't necessarily know him by his face, but when I heard his voice, it definitely stuck out. But you've just got this cast of people who are put together because essentially death follows them. And at one point or another, they've had someone die around them or 
uh, the one guy, you know, it's tasted human flesh and all this and went to prison for it. And yeah, it's it's an interesting movie. It's pretty wild on paper, and I'm probably making it sound a lot more interesting than it is. Honestly, this movie is pretty boring for the most part, but there are times when it's pretty entertaining. The werewolf is terrible. It is pretty much just a dog. And uh, there's a a quote unquote transformation scene that happens after the werewolf break. And it is a sight to behold. I thought it was hilarious. A lot of the times with this movie, you get really bad overacting. And I think you get that with the uh, the lead character who's a bit deranged and seems a bit off his rocker. And honestly, that can be fun at points, but other points it's like this guy is this guy's nuts. But a lot of these people who are acting and Cushing does fine. He's not phoning it in or anything in this performance, but a lot of these people seem like they're dubbed. It seems like there's an overdub going on and it's very weird what's going on, but it seems like sometimes the voice acting is so bad or the lips don't sync up to the, to what they're saying. And it seems like they're dubbed, but again, this is a, this is a UK production. The deaths in this one aren't terrible. They are, uh, they're decent. I would say they're nothing to, you're not going to see any, um, kills that take place in the moment, you're pretty much just going to see the aftermath in this film. But yeah, again, it points, I think it's at its best when all the guests are together and they're going, they're talking through different things and they're doing different werewolf tests and they're talking about werewolf lore and things like that. Or they're talking about, you know, how death has followed a lot of them. I do like those scenes for sure. But there's just so much tediousness when Tom is out hunting and he's flying around in a chopper. He's viewing footage and it's just boring and it's not good. Uh, There's there's a lot of flaws in this film. I think on paper, this film could have been incredible. And I honestly, if somebody took this premise and did it today, you'd probably do it a whole lot better. But as it stands, you know, it's it's not that great. And again, I've got to knock this one huge for the werewolf, which is a dog. There's no, there's no real transformation in this one. The wolf is, it's, it's seriously just a dog. I don't know what else to say with it, but so the werewolf's terrible. Uh, the acting's pretty bad. Uh, it gets boring at times. This isn't really that great of a movie. But, you know, there it is. It's it's out there to enjoy. I think the most entertainment I got, like I said, there's some decent scenes where they're talking about werewolves. And then also when Tom just starts to flip out at the end of this movie. I like that, too. I mean, that is just over the top crazy and it's so dumb and I do enjoy that. But other than that, there's really not a lot to uh, to write home about with this one. It's kind of dull. And I don't know how many ways I could say that anymore, but Paul Annette didn't really do a whole lot else of notoriety after this, and I don't think he did much before it either. And I could I could kind of see why he's not the most captivating director. But hey, I'm sure there are some people that are fans of this one out there. 
I don't know how I landed in, in this one. It was fate that I watched this movie, apparently. But uh, if I had to rate it, I'd probably have to come in at like a maybe a 5.5 just for some of the crazier moments. I want to give it a I'm teetering between a five and 5.5. I'll just I'll just go with a 5.5. But I would say uh, check this one out at your own risk. The werewolf break. I love that idea. It gets a lot of points for that. It gets a lot of points for the party scenes type, not like dinner party scenes, not necessarily real party scenes, but that's that's really all I have to say on this one. I wouldn't really recommend it that much, but so if I'm ranking those two for right now, the Wolfman 2010 is still in that top spot while the beast must die is at number two. But yeah, I'm going to stop there for now and you probably won't get another one of these until at least November. So I've got plenty of time to try to curate and pick a better werewolf movie than these two. But hey, such is life. Now that I'm warmed up and ready to go, I'm going to go ahead and move into my Hitchcock talk. And first up, I'm going to be talking about Vertigo with Nathan Bartlebaugh. And we'll review that movie and then I will move into my uh, history segment on that and North by Northwest. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it. It wasn't your fault. Do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? You jumped into the bay. You didn't know where you were. You gasped, but you didn't, didn't know. Jump. I didn't jump, I tell you. Why, told did me you I jump? Why did you jump? Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. What is this? What do you want? I don't know who you are. I remind you of her. I need you to be Madeline for a while. Okay, so now I'm here joined by Nathan Bartlebaugh to discuss Vertigo, which is one of his favorite movies, I believe. Right, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. Favorite favorite Hitchcock films. I would definitely put it in the in the top five for me. Yeah, and I'm trying to get some people in here to talk about some uh, Hitchcock films they're passionate about. And um, I know I had Greg Bazzelli on for Rear Window, and now I've got you on here for Vertigo, and uh, have Victor lined up for a future one. So. Uh, Victor Rodriguez. So that'll be his first time on Screaming Through the Ages, and that'll be fun. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go into a review of Vertigo and just talk about whatever we really want to on this film. And I will warn you, we'll probably get into spoilers at some point. So I'm putting this up here right at front. And yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and set this one up, Nathan, and then I'll get your initial thoughts on it. Sounds good. So this was released in 1958, runs for 128 minutes, fairly long. And I think Hitchcock was getting longer at this point with his run times. But the synopsis reads, a retired San Francisco detective suffering from acrophobia 
investigates the strange activities of an old friend's wife, all the while becoming dangerously obsessed with her. So, Nathan, that's kind of the setup. What are your, I mean, maybe if you want to get into, if you remember, like, the first time you saw this movie, and what are just your overall general thoughts of Vertigo? Okay, I did get a chance to re-watch this via uh, 4K that came out. I actually have the box set that came out uh, a few years back, and I probably picked it up during probably like a, a Black Friday or something like that. It had Rear Window, The Birds, this one, and Psycho on it. Yeah, I was using my old uh, Hitchcock Blu-ray, like the Masterpiece Collection or whatever, and that one oddly enough, just takes you straight in to playing the movie. Like there's no title menu or anything. That's what, that's what universal put together for us. But yeah, is that, no, is that a DVD set? This is a Blu-ray set, but it's got like 15 of the, um, universal licensed. Okay. I'm not sure if I have the same one, but I have a very similar one. I know there were two sets that came out and, uh, I picked that up more recently, but as far as a 4k, I, I, watch it in 4k so it was interesting to see it in that level of clarity which i'd never seen before now the first time i saw the movie uh from beginning to end i had seen segments of the film but i really didn't see it until probably towards the end of my uh high school career like when probably 1997 or 98 maybe even after high school and it was one of those movies that we had that Columbia house. We were recently talking about this with, uh, on land of the creeps with Columbia house. You get like what, like eight movies or something for like eight cents. I think or... it was like 12 or something for you, a penny or something. Yeah, You like got that. a bunch yeah. for like a penny each or something. But of course the, the deal was then you had to buy like seven or eight more. And what they would actually do is they would send them to you. You didn't really get to choose. And then if you didn't send mail them back, then you kept the movie and had to pay like twenty four ninety five or whatever yeah, the yeah. price was that they were charging them for. So we got Vertigo was one of the 12 movies at the time. And it was my parents had seen it. I don't think I had ever seen it before. So I sat down and watched it back then. And I was really kind of blown away by it. I had seen several of Hitchcock's other movies, most of his more famous stuff at this point. So Psycho, The Birds, etc. And watching it, I'd also seen a lot of Jimmy Stewart's movies. So watching it, what kind of blew me away was how the movie is segmented. And and as you pointed out, that very basic synopsis does sum up the heart and the crux of the movie, but it also, it doesn't really account for how the movie changes over the course of time. Right. Uh, In fact, the movie opens up with that, that bout of vertigo that, that he experiences where he's, looking down you know there's an accident that happens and sort of takes him off of the detective beat and now he's in you know he's almost in that rear window scenario right when the movie begins he's kind of uh, relying heavily upon uh like a, a female friend he can't really do a whole lot now that that dissipates but that's the way the movie starts and then that first bit of the mystery where the old friend is saying hey there's a thing going on with my wife i mean he he immediately starts talking about the supernatural. So that's an interesting bit, because I think we would agree that Vertigo is no way really a horror film. It, it's not no. close to Psycho or the birds in that way. But it does start out with a sort of supernatural bent, or at least a supernatural possibility to the mystery. And then that's layer one. Layer two is basically what that synopsis suggests, which is that once Stuart's character starts following her, the wife, Madeline, right? She, he, once he starts following her and gets involved with her, then you've got layer two, which is, you know, that predicament. He's supposed to be keeping an eye on this woman who 
the husband thinks might be possessed by the spirit of this other woman and and is trying to inadvertently uh or or purposefully kill her you know to to drown her and that becomes the crux of the movie and of course i don't know how far we want to get into spoilers but then you have this third part and that third segment of the movie is where i what really won me over i think that the rest of it up to the point is kind of it's a little bit standard in terms of uh suspense thrillers and even suspense thrillers that hitchcock had done but the third part which i assume we'll talk about is where for me the jimmy stewart casting and the kim novak casting they really come into their own and it's the third part that i think helps uh sort of make this movie stand out as one of hitchcock's masterpieces one of his best movies and that's all I that's the all the things I thought on the first viewing. I was really just pulled into the story, pulled through, and then at the when you get to the very end, I thought, wow, this is so much more than I was expecting. I think it's a great early example, although not early for Hitchcock, he made tons of movies by this point. But I think when you see not exactly genre hopping, but redefining things, he obviously does that in Psycho, but I think Vertigo is the movie, maybe the most twisty plot-wise he had been, with with not just being like a oh, here's the, uh, here's the big twist that changes things, but rather that the movie keeps transforming itself about every, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. So that's what I saw the first time. This new viewing, I think what I became more uh, aware of is that the movie is more melodramatic than I remembered, or, or maybe mm-hmm. I was just caught up in it back then. <laughs> and it doesn't stand, it's not as subtle as some of, some of his other films. And there are now I recognize there are movies in his, body of work that I probably think are a little more successful, but this one is still very like visceral. And it's that, again, it's that third part. And now what I see more than ever is we'll get into it, but Hitchcock commenting on his own sort of behaviors in regards to his, his preferences, maybe even his fetishes his his desire for control, the things that define him as a director and some of the negative stuff that has followed him post you know, his, his career, I think are actually up on screen in vertigo in a way that he's actually like putting them out there. And I don't know that I fully saw that previously. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head because that's of what little I've looked into this so far is, you know, that was a big thing is Hitchcock was very passionate about this film. And it seemed like everyone could see that he's almost putting himself in the role of Jimmy Stewart's character. And, uh, you know, his, I think the whole thing, the obsession, the, the all of that, I think feeds into what Hitchcock was. And it's funny, Nathan, because this is one that we, um, I think everyone would say, you know, this is one of the Hitchcock films that people probably know about, you know, they're uh, first and foremost, you're probably going to know about like rear window and psycho and things like that. But I think this is still on that level where it's like with the birds and this one where a lot of people know about it yet and consider it you know a classic yet when this film came out it was a bomb people hated it critics hated it they hated the abrupt ending this one kind of came and went and it's weird to go back and think of like which ones of these hit and which ones didn't but i think you're right i think a lot of it maybe went over the head of people at the time or maybe just that first viewing whenever people's heads because I don't know if I caught everything in the first viewing either but I think uh, you mentioned um, Stuart and Novak and I think they do an excellent job in this film the cast all around which I think is a common thing amongst Hitchcock but 
yeah, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head with everything that's going on with this movie. Yeah, I think, and and to speak very quickly to what you said about the, you know, it going sort of over people's heads, I think that the interesting thing about Vertigo, and perhaps why it has continued to be a favorite of mine, and I think this is actually true of the birds as well, is that on the surface, it does feel like you get everything up front. It looks, it's very uh, overwrought at places, it's very melodramatic, it can seem almost like um histronic towards the end right and that but that abrupt ending kind of makes you feel like maybe what you've really seen is a is a maybe not so great melodrama right in terms of the the plotting and and, and what happens in the film because i think once everything's been revealed on a certain level in a lesser movie that would have you examining the plot and trying to track back and say well could this have happened and could they have prepared for that and realistically would Stuart not be aware of this or that? And so it would be everything, and maybe it was when it came out, I don't know. I think something similar with The Birds, where you can address it at a plot level, but I think what's so great about this particular film is you've got everything that happens on the surface, and there's plenty that happens on the surface, so you can see this movie and experience all the drama in it, but it's sort of what's underneath, particularly that last third, that I think gives it, makes it a great film. But some great movies require that the first time through. This movie has a level at which it just plays as a thriller. And I could see people sort of being turned off by it, especially because Rear Windows happened. Uh, and he's made a few other movies with Stewart at this point, I think. Yes. Um, yep. But I think we would agree. So I, I won't lay out the whole plot here, but as we talk, because this is a, a spoiler sort of episode, I'll go into the fact that at the beginning of the film, Stewart is basically playing a character very similar, I think, to his rear window character, right? He's And he's playing a character very similar to his Jimmy Stewart persona, mm-hmm. which is the good guy, the kind of wholesome guy. He's, he, he's got a, a, a jokey but sort of easygoing atmosphere to him, everything about him. And in, in when we say that Hitchcock sort of put himself on screen is Stewart, one would could probably see that as being very... Uh, narcissistic because here's jimmy stewart the every man the hero that's not who he becomes as the movie progresses and i wonder if that playing against type stewart gets pretty dark his character you know scotty gets quite dark in this film and he is i think arguably not a hero by the end of the movie and it's playing very much into a sort of noir sensibility by the time that the picture's like done I wonder if that element of it isn't what sort of put from an initial box office and sort of like blockbuster friendly movie. This movie, it doesn't really have that because I think Stewart's playing a character that by the end of the film, you're not exactly on his side. You can sympathize with him, but he's darker than the average guy. He's certainly darker than the guy from, you know, wonderful life. And Mr. <laughs> Smith goes to Washington and movies yeah. like that. But what Hitchcock is doing is he's playing that type right off the bat because Stewart is that kind of person initially. And then we see him become more and more obsessive. And I think that obsessive element is where the movie really like has probably gained ground and retained the classic sense that it might not have had like when it first came out. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. And uh, to your point, I think that's absolutely could have happened um, and been one of the the factors. And I think another one I saw that was common with reviews is just how abrupt the ending is, which it absolutely is. This thing just ends. And um, 
and it just goes to black. I mean, I forgot that 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 happened. I don't know if you did, too, when you were rewatching it this time, but that thing just goes. And um, an interesting thing you said about Stort is I think there were a lot of repercussions from this film because after this, you know, Hitchcock thought, you know, Stort might have been some of the reason why his movie failed here and that it was kind of because he was an aging star. So I think this probably, even though, you know, Stort's playing off character and uh, he, I mean, he is getting up there. He's been acting for almost as long as Hitchcock's been directing. It feels like at that point, but yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting take on that as well. Why maybe modern or contemporary audiences might not have been as into it, but what do you think about the, uh, the character of Midge in this Nathan? Um, I want to get to that. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I like her a lot. I think, and I think that she's a character who really becomes prominent on, on uh, subsequent viewings. Like there are things in this movie. And I think the sign of a great movie is when there's always something new for you to pull from it when you go back to it. And I think, and that's Barbara Bel Geddes is playing uh, Midge in the film. She's, she's an interesting example of, what is happening in the movie at large. I think when we look at once you've got Hitchcock's filmography to look at from a distance, like most of us who came to Hitchcock's films probably came to them, you know, after he was finished directing, I know you and I would have had to right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, because we were born after he was making movies. And the, the element of that means that we can look at everything that he's put on film and we can observe his obsessions. We can observe his, his behaviors. We have the stories from the sets and the biographies that have been written about him. So we can look back at all that. So specifically, of course, there's how he treats women in movies. And I I think it was Rod Ebert who years ago did a review of this movie, probably in the nineties around the time I saw it. And it was a revival review, of course. And he was talking about that Hitchcock has a tendency to humiliate the women in his movies a lot Mm -hmm. of times, right? Like if, in fact, I think the saying, the statement he made was that they weren't being dragged through the literal mud, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were literally dragged through the metaphorical mud. They, they, they would come off uh, either being tortured or, uh, and I don't mean necessarily like physically tortured, but harassed and terrorized. Yeah. And, or they would sort of come off as almost villainous or displicitous characters. Uh, and you can see that kind of all through his career. And he also, there's a type, right? There's mm-hmm. a type that emerges with these sort of steely, blonde characters and that's certainly where kim novak fits in and yeah. particularly the the madeline character that that uh, scotty meets in the middle of the movie and then you have midge and there's definitely a there's a there's definitely sort of a type of character that she represents that show up in hitchcock movies a lot right and yep. including rear window and so midge here she's like what i think is fascinating about her is she has She's a commentary on Scotty in ways that we don't know yet. A lot of their conversations exist throughout the film, and a lot of them exist. And this is maybe one of the issues that as I've returned to Hitchcock as an adult, I have come to realize that uh, his way of cramming information into a film is not that sophisticated. It's certainly not as sophisticated as his his compositions and some of his story structures and even the way he develops his characters and his handle on the the dynamics between his characters but when it comes to like giving you basic information about a plot he uses some of these conversations to just 
throw out whole chunks of stuff, right? Like yes. information yep. about having vertigo and then some fun information that isn't completely or doesn't appear to be completely necessary. Like the discussion about the bras and the, mm-hmm. the dynamics of the, uh, the the physics by the construction of the, the bras. But the all these conversations that happen between he and Mitch early on, where there's a kind of low key flirtation going on. And even the revel- revelation in one of the first conversations that, you know, hey, we were engaged for a while back in college. And uh, you can see that Midge is still holding on to it. She's still trying to care for him and look out for him. And then the question becomes, uh, she's she's clearly a great confidant. She's a great friend. She's She she demonstrates all the qualities that seemingly this character would approve of and, and want. And yet he seems completely cool on that, right? Like he doesn't seem yeah, interested I mean... at all. I mean, he makes the statement there after the engagement comment that, you know, you're the one that broke that off. But there's a moment uh, of silence and a zoom in on her face. Yes. Too, but that's not really the yes. case. Yeah, they're uh, they're obviously indifferent, um, whether he's just oblivious to it or, uh, you know, just not interested at all. It's very clear that there are two different emotions going on in that room. Yeah, right. But I think she's a good barometer for the film that she's always there for him. And we see that character in movies a lot. And usually that is there. That character exists to endear us to the hero, right? Mm-hmm. We see this great person that would always stand by them. And that, in a way, is supposed to psychologically kind of play out that, well, he's a great guy. Because, look, somebody like Midge would be there in his corner. But I think the opposite sort of happens where, as it continues, as he starts to go down this rabbit hole that begins with, you know, he starts breaking some moral basic conventions like having a relationship with his with the the wife of his school friend or, or his school acquaintance that's hired him to do this midge basically witnesses all of this and then and then even further than that and so as we see her responses to it i think that helps show to us that maybe he isn't the guy that we thought he was or that underneath all of this there's a darker like element to him yeah and the um i mean i think that's abundantly clear and it's kind of heartbreaking when we see later on when he's in the um, when he's institutionalized and she's still there sticking by him and, you know, getting nothing out of him. But, you know, she's there every day. And then at some point we just lose the Midge character. I think we assume she probably gave up on the guy or maybe <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. But she's kind of like cut out from that point on. There's still probably what would you say about 20 minutes of the movie? Um, after we get the whole institution thing and he's recovering and all that. And um, she just never comes back, which it doesn't make sense for her to come back. I mean, she has no part in the story. It's clear, but it's still heartbreaking that we never hear from Midge again after that point. Yeah. And I, I will say this, going back to the film, I don't believe it's a perfect film and it's a lot of, and I don't actually believe in this instance that that abrupt ending is a virtue of the movie. Like I don't, uh, I I can see why it was done, but I don't think it entirely works uh, personally mm-hmm. there. I'm sure I know people have written a lot about why, you know, this has happened, but to me, there does feel like there could be a rewrite or a reorganization of things here because it does seem strange in some ways to drop that Midge character. Uh, however, what you're looking at is probably Hitchcock's resistance to have a nice wrap it up in a bow because we see him yeah. do that a little bit later in movies like psycho where he, you know, to me that goes on too long. So I don't know yes. what could have been done here. He wants to leave us with a like raw edge to the film. 
one could also argue he will leave us with the destruction of a female as the final thing we yeah. kind of see <laughs> in the film. Uh, but I think it's the reason that Midge sort of doesn't re-emerge is because at that point you almost have too many female characters because, and we yeah. haven't really talked too much about this, Kim Novak is essentially playing, you know, two people and, mm-hmm. and maybe close to three people because the <laughs> Madeline that we see that is maybe sometimes being possessed by this dead woman is really just, she's a creation, right? Yeah. And she's a creation by Gavin, who's the who's the old friend. Uh, again, here's the spoiler that Gavin does all of this. He hires Stuart because he remembers him, but he also knows that he has the, because of the vertigo, if they're to stage a murder, they may be able to have him as a witness, but not a complete witness. Someone who's seen the wife be murdered, and but who isn't going to actually see the moment of death because he can't get up those stairs where they've staged the drop-off. And so that mm-hmm. means that Kim Novak's character that we believe is Madeline is ultimately someone else. But the movie keeps all of this hidden as we go forward. So we're learning this with Scotty's character so that once he believes Madeline is dead, and I think that's the real brilliance of bringing in, you know, when Gavin is asking, telling him about this sort of possession bit, like it almost, I think, people who are the plot hounds who want to make sure the plot makes perfect sense, maybe asking themselves, well, why go the supernatural route? Like, why does, what does Gavin ultimately gain, particularly with a potential, you know, a a guy that would most likely be skeptical? What does he gain by having such a complex, like, haunting plot, right? That his wife is, like, why can't it be something else that drives her here? Because all he needs is a person that can witness that, yes, Madeline is having issues, Madeline kills herself. And so this excessive plot about being possessed by a dead woman seems like the kind of thing that would, it's it, it just like, what's the purpose of doing it? But there's, uh, there's a part of me that wonders that if he can convince, he's almost testing uh, Stewart's character, Scotty, to see, you know, what are the, the you're going to have to have someone who's going to be able to buy into things that aren't exactly as they appear that aren't going to question too deeply they're going to accept that this happened so he seems to almost be testing the waters with them would you believe this how much will you believe and what what degree would you believe now i don't think he's uh, he's clearly not accounting for the fact that later scotty's going to meet this woman again a second (laughs) time but in a sense that ghost plot helps him be i think more uh susceptible to what happens later on yeah and um i and i'm not gonna say i do like the background of the carlotta stuff and i do like they you know at one point they're pretty much let's go to a a local historian that gets all the the local stuff that would know about this and i do like that background and story even though it doesn't necessarily play in that much but i think you're right i think you know I'm going to get this guy and make him believe it. And honestly, you know, Midge, I believe the whole time is telling him like, this doesn't really make sense when she, when he finally does give her the details. But yeah, I think that's the deep seed that was planted that really led to him kind of 
losing it later because he kind of does open his mind up to all these possibilities. And uh, there's two scenes. There's one where he has the mental break. And then there's one where he meets someone who is, you know, seemingly like Madeline and or who he thinks is Madeline. And yeah, that gets that gets extremely dark when his you can tell his mind's just broken and he's obsessed. And like you said, he's more apt to believe it because he went along with it the first time he was convinced of it the first time. Yeah, I think that's a very I think that's probably the deepest part of this plot, I would say, is just the fact that how this guy is from the beginning of the film to how obsessive and dark he gets by the end of it. Yeah, and here's where I would say that the that the the ghost plot and everything involved in that. So everything that Gavin creates, I think this is where the movie gets most interesting and heads into the deepest in that third segment. And I think it's safe to say here that what when Jimmy Stewart's character, when Scotty, you know, has gotten past what he believes to be Madeline's death, you know, he's he's become enamored with her. They start a relationship. He's trying to help her and save her. And then she dies anyway. At least that's what it appears to be. And he goes through everything. And then he begins to see her. And he kind of starts to sort of subsequently sort of fall apart in a sense. Uh, but then he strikes up this relationship with this person, Judy Barton, who is also played by Kim Novak. And of course, what we come to learn is that they are the same person. Mm-hmm. But what I think matters about all those details, the Carlotta stuff, all of this, is that Gavin builds this person completely out of his own designs for the purpose of being able to murder his wife. But the Novak character, the Madeline character is a complete creation of his, but it's the creation, at least at first. uh, It's interesting because Stuart and Judy, because really she's Judy the whole time. Mm -hmm. She's pretending to be Madeline for Stuart. Judy and Stuart and Scotty start to have, a real relationship that sort of sidelines or, or, or side swipes, I guess, Judy. And she's like, realized she cares for him and his feelings for him. And that happens even before they play the plot out to its final, like, I'm going to fake, fake the murder. The reason I mention that though, is what, what Scotty seems to latch onto though, isn't that relational spark. It's all of the like little, almost like he gets wrapped up in the fetishistic details that Gavin created the person he's searching for when he meets Judy, the downfall of the plot is that he can't be happy with this person. Who's very much like the person he used to know. He's obsessed with the image, with this thing in his mind that he wants this woman to be that maybe Hitchcock wants all women to be. And it's in that, that he ends up destroying both his chance at happiness and destroying Judy in a sense, uh, there are also her sins to account for from, from you know, kind of the entire charade. But the, the thing is, he's pursuing, and he's, when he learns about it, he's so angry. And I think it's partially is he's been, he's trying to mold her in this image that he has, but he's not even responsible for the image. He's, the thing he's attracted and obsessed over is this lie that the other guy invented for him. So it's not even his model version of a woman it's this other guy's model version of a woman <laughs> and he seems to be even more angry about that that he's bought into this and that he's been he's obsessively trying to transform her and then because she physically and emotionally cares about him she goes along with it when she knows better 
And there's yes. that scene when she comes out where she's transformed herself and the scene itself transforms in such a way that it is like you're seeing her become Madeline. You know, the possession story that was a fake in the first half of the movie is literally true now because she's possessed by this person that never actually existed, this role that she played. It's because he can't get beyond it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know about you, Nathan, but when someone starts to, I mean, Judy obviously knows what has gone on in the past. She's obviously played that character and she knows exactly what's going on with him, what's happening. I think I'm out of there at that point. I got to <laughs> any chance that I get. I mean, I don't care how many feelings I have for this guy. He just seems like he is transfixed and so obsessed with this. And it's kind of to a scary level. And of course, it doesn't end well for anyone. But I I just think at some point you got to say to yourself, I got to get out of here. <laughs> like this seems this isn't right. I mean, how what kind of um, just getting this to that kind of level, like what kind of relationship are you having when this guy is fixated on this character you played and you know that you played it? He doesn't know that, but he's trying to change you into that. And does he really have feelings for you at all? And I think she protests about that a couple of times, but she uh, still sticks around. Yeah, and I think that that part gets tricky. Like, why would you stick around there? And there are obviously in the film's text and subtext, there are lots of reasons potentially for that. Some of that now, obviously, there's one where he's discovered the truth. Mm-hmm. So if he knows the truth and he leaves this situation being, you know, distraught and unhappy, what are the chances he's going to sell them out, you know, and sort of reveal the whole thing? So, yeah. There's, there's there's probably some vested interest in her to sort of be to to kind of stick around here and make sure this guy just doesn't go off the rails and ruin the whole thing. But she clearly cares for him in such a case where she's not going to try to murder him herself or something like that that we might see in like a lesser film. She's really trapped by the fact that she loves this person, but this person has a vision of what he wants her to be. And it's interesting that in the ghost story element or the backstory of the ghost story there's a lot of references to how well no you know the the guy wanted a child and he couldn't get this so when he didn't get that he threw her away too and that's what men could do to women back then and there's Mm -hmm. this talk in this film that's made in the 50s where this character is talking about basically suggesting oh we're much more enlightened now than we were back then at this the, you know, this man who's done with this woman and she doesn't match up what he wants her to be. He'll just crumple her up and throw her away. And yet it really does echo and reflect the plot that happens as the film goes forward with the Stuart character who he and, and Midge and, and the guy standing there in the shop, you know, everyone can kind of pretend like they're a little more enlightened and that they won't fall into this trap. Yeah. Uh, no, I think this is fascinating. And this is where we get the real life parallels between Hitchcock and trying to Um, take his certain type of ideal woman and kind of mold people in a certain image and who they hang out with and try to kind of guide them down the path to be his uh, quote unquote perfect woman. And I think that's where these two intersect, but the very interesting points there, Nathan, anything else you want to talk about with the specifically the, the plot of this one or any of the characters? No, I think uh, there's two very quick things. One is across the board, the characters are very interesting. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what, uh, makes the movie so strong is that even when you go and visit somebody at a bookstore or at an apartment building and this I, you see other great directors do this down the line is like you know when you have a thriller like this and it was being done in the 40s you take every chance you can 
to interject a colorful character into into the happenings. And Hitchcock was really good at that. And I think he's good at that here, where every kind of interaction that Stuart gets to have with these characters or other characters, it really it, it really gives you an opportunity to meet a colorful character. And most of the time you do. But again, I think sometimes he was using it to cover the fact that he was just splurting out a lot of information. But if you give an interesting character does your exposition dump, then you can get away with it. And I think yeah. Scott <laughs> did that a lot. The other thing is structurally, from a plot perspective, structurally what's interesting is by the time we meet Novak as the second, technically the second character, the movie has a shift that you don't always see. Like you see it extremely in Psycho, right? Where we think mm-hmm. we're following Marion Crane and we are until there's no Marion Crane to follow. That's a very like hard, obvious like readjustment, flipping the script. But here, once she's in the film as the second character, I think you could you could argue that the Madeline we meet initially is that distant, icy, you know, not terribly complex, like Hitchcock female character. But the Judy character is probably one of the most sympathetic Hitchcock female characters, uh, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And, and the movie really becomes her movie at that point. We start to see things through her perspective. We start to see her dilemma because she now has to deal with this obsessive guy. And Hitchcock opens the movie up. And I think that's interesting. I don't think I noticed that before, that it isn't really just his obsessive quest once she comes into the film. It's her movie almost equally because their fates are sort of intertwined by that point. And I don't think there's a lot of his movies where there's a male lead where the female lead gets that level of development. Yeah, and at that point, it's almost, it's absolutely what you said. She's the sympathetic character, and he's no longer our protagonist at this point. I don't think, I mean, maybe to an extent you feel sorry for him. Sure, I can buy that. But at some point, she's the one that we kind of feel, or at least I did, felt nervous for and felt kind of like um, I was rooting for her in this situation. I don't know. And it's not like she has a spotless record any way, like as you right. indicated. But I think it it does shift to that perspective once she comes into the into the spotlight and kind of seeing um, Scotty's transformation. It's like she becomes the one that I'm rooting for and that I am mostly, I guess, identifying with in that scene because I'm not identifying with whatever Scotty's doing. Well, I think it's the difference between her character is the character who's in a place or who's trying to give love, who's trying to love. Whereas what he's doing is obsession and he's trying to Mm -hmm. all the way up until the end. He's trying to basically reach his own goals, to satisfy his own desires and his own quest is about him. She and this is like my last plot point that I wanted to make. Like the MacGuffin, right? Everybody talks about the MacGuffin in relation to Hitchcock, right? Yeah. Um, now it was really related to the Maltese Falcon, and it was yes, that yeah. screenwriter who was also Brit Angus McPhail who actually coined the term. So Hitchcock, some people were like, oh, Hitchcock. He you he was very fond of referencing it, but it's like actually Angus McPhail who created that terminology. And it's so funny, I think, that so many writers today, because when we hear about the MacGuffin in modern movies, it's oh, that's the thing that everybody's after. You know, yeah. that's the, the which is true, but it's like they you they throw that term around because it evokes Hitchcock and others, and they don't really understand it. Because if all it is is a thing that everyone's chasing after, well, that's so easy to understand, and every movie has that, right? 
Yeah. But I think that what's interesting about the way that Hitchcock applied that terminology to his own work, at least in Vertigo, the MacGuffin is the Madeline character, right? It's the, it's not Judy per se. The MacGuffin, the thing that everybody is concerned about is that fictitious persona. Uh, Gavin needs it to be believed so he can get away with murder. Judy needs it to be believed for a couple of reasons. One of them primarily being that she's not an accomplice to murder. And then he needs to, Scotty needs to believe it because his whole life is like down to searching after this idea of a woman that he didn't really know. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. I think that's a good point about the MacGuffin, Nathan. I never really thought about that. Kind of just understand, you know, because MacGuffin's what's been around since at least Shakespeare. (laughs) I mean, that's been something that's. um... Well, anytime you've had drama where somebody wants something and somebody else doesn't want them to have it or wants it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, very, uh, very interesting point there. I don't think I've thought of Vertigo in that lens, but um, I think that absolutely makes sense. When I think the other part of it that they McPhail and them talked about, it was like in and of itself, it's not important except for the fact that everybody wants it. And that is true here, too, that at first at first glance, you've got this woman. She's in the spotlight. But this Madeline storyline looks like it's just going to be a plot detail. But then it becomes much much more rich than all that. And it really becomes that stand in for sort of Hitchcock's quest to put all of these women, many of them real actresses into a box (laughs) that, that the, that looks like this. And it should be uh, emphasized again is we never actually know Madeline. We never, we never meet that character. I don't think, right. I'm trying to think back if there's ever, you mean mean Gavin's actual wife. Yes. Yes. No. So the best of my knowledge and rewatching it, uh, no, you don't. Yeah. And that was something I looked for. And I think that's very important because this is a movie that's a lot of fun to talk about from the back end, but all the little pieces we're talking about, the ghost story and the things, they all work so well because we don't know that something else is coming per se. And they're very compelling in and of themselves. So we're invested in learning that backstory of this woman who may be believing that she's possessed. We're into that story. Then we're into the story of this woman that, you know, He's trying to save from some sense of fatalism and can't. And then we're into the last story where now he is seeing a woman that looks identical to the one that seemingly died. Yeah, a lot of layers there for sure. But yeah, if you're good with plot and characters, I've got some um, stylistic stuff I wanted to bring up with you that I don't think stayed with me, at least from the first couple of times I had watched this movie. And one is we get, first of all, that opening credits scene. Uh, it's about two minutes long, and it's very much like it's an animated scene. And um, that was actually the first computer animated segment ever used in a film. Hitchcock had paid someone that used a, an old World War II anti-aircraft computer to put that together. <laughs> That's interesting. I did not know that. That. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, but that's not the only time he's experimenting with it, right? Because we get later, there's a dream sequence with uh, Scotty's character, and we see some animation come in then. And it's more of the traditional type of animation. And we see, you know, that spiraling image, and we see flashing lights. And then later on, we see a lot of neon, especially when they're in that hotel room, uh, Judy and Scotty. So I think Hitchcock's going for a lot of different interesting stylistic choices that I don't think I recall him really using in any of his films before that, at least not any recent to this one. Yeah, there is definitely a sense of Hitchcock 
look like using multiple different sort of media styles and 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 uh, even sort of motifs in the in in the same film, you know, so that mm-hmm. we jump from one type to another type. The dream sequence stuff that happens in this, I think, for me, just off the top of my head, like the closest correlation I can find, of course, is when he did Spellbound in 1945. And I think we've talked about. Oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about we were on an episode. I think the last time I was on to talk Hitchcock with you was Spellbound, and I think we both probably agree that that movie is less successful than Vertigo. Yeah, uh, yeah, I believe so anyway. And but that film had Dal- Salvador Dali inspired dream sequences, and those dream sequences were were sort of supposed to reflect the inner workings of the character's mind, right? And that one, you've got like some potential like loss of memory and loss of identity and things going on. Uh, So there's some of that in Spellbound. And I think you see some of that, uh, you see that here in Vertigo, but those stylistic things, it is very interesting because I think there's a lot of stuff in Vertigo that sort of draws attention to itself and is very interesting. But I do think you begin to ask yourself, how much does this play into the overall film. But I think what I like stylistically, my stylistic things of Vertigo are the, his visualization of the Vertigo itself. Like the way he shoots that through the the eyes of, of Stewart's character. And it's really capturing Stewart's inner mind, whether it's a physical, like, like how he's trapped by the Vertigo or how he's trapped by this, this also failing of, of being so obsessed with this woman. And those two scenes, the scenes when he is looking down and it just looks like you're zooming down that tunnel, right? Like, I know yeah. they built a lot of different things in order to achieve that effect. I think that's a very interesting visceral special effect. But then it's it's sort of dovetailed with that scene where he sees her transformed into the woman he's been trying to make her be. That's another really cool stylistic, like, I think where Hitchcock's firing on all the, like, artistic cylinders. Yeah, for sure. But... I just thought that was interesting. Um, I'm always, you mentioned the vertigo thing. I'm always, I'm usually entertained when I see that uh, we get that first person view of something that's a little (laughs) bit off. And I think you and I will be talking about um, an animal horror movie uh, soon on HMP that has a similar sequence in it with from a, (laughs) from a certain point of view. But yeah, I like what he's doing stylistically. I like the dream sequence and all of that and how it kind of really conveys what Scotty's going through. But I think that's all the notes I had written down here. I think you or I either touched the points. Uh, anything else you want to talk about on the film before we kind of wrap up and give our thoughts? No, I, here's what I would say about Vertigo, because I do think it is one of Hitchcock's best movies, in my opinion. I think it's one of Jimmy Stewart's best movies. Again, Kim Novak is amazing in the film. She looks great, but uh, she commands the screen. She And then she is doing this thing, and I think that Hitchcock himself may be aware is she embodies perfectly that sort of, I guess, the Hitchcock female ideal that he normally takes and like crumples up and destroys. And then he brings in Judy, who is sort of that, you know, she's a little different, right? She's, she's not, she's, she's definitely a little bit more aggressive and more, uh, she's a different kind of person, obviously, because Madeline's a figment. But we see her being reserved and, and not knowing quite what to make of Stewart's character. And I think that's a pretty impressive secondary performance because first you're playing a woman who is also pretending to be someone who's pretending to be possessed. 
Mm-hmm. And then you've got the third character who is who was there all along, and you have to capture her in such a way that she seems believable. Yeah, and I don't think we mentioned Nathan. Um, one more thing I thought of is that, uh, and maybe you mentioned it. And apologies if you did, but that iconic scene where she just goes off of the bridge that kind of sets all of this in motion. And I love that scene. I think that's a, a fantastic. Yeah, scene. I love that scene. And the other scene that has always stuck with me, and there's a reasoning for it is the scene when they go to that redwood forest with the petrified oh, yeah, forest yeah. and they see the tree. And there's that great visual of her looking at the tree and we can see the segments that show here's when this, this war happened. Here's the signing of this treaty, all these things of, sort of ancient and 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 maybe not so ancient history and the tree is cut down like in the 30s and she has that moment where she is pretending to be madeline who believes that she previously was this other woman you know she's well here i was born and here i died it was just a moment like in the history of this this tree and then when she walks away from from Stuart, he loses track of her in that forest, right? And and there's that that kind of there's Hitchcock taking the obvious sort of joke of like, look, as we come to learn, Scotty can't see the forest for the trees, right? <laughs> he can't see the thing happening right in front of him because he's he's been blindsided by this woman and his feelings for. Her. But you know, when he looks, tries to look behind this tree, she's not there. He can't see her initially, and then he and he finds her, but visually i love that and that scene is replicated not replicated is shown shot for shot in 12 monkeys the terry gilliam film yeah it's also about about a man being obsessed with a woman (laughs) and and who the plot is driven by that and his and that one it's bruce willis and madeline stowe and 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 madeline stowe at one point you know uh is trying as they're running from the authorities she puts on a, you know, she has to put on a disguise and that triggers a memory for him. So there, there's a lot of Gilliam playing with with Vertigo in that film. But there's a point when they hide out in a the theater, which incidentally, by the way, for everyone who listens to Phantom Galaxy, has heard me even on HMP, talk about the Senator Theater here in Baltimore. The scene's actually filmed in that theater and they're watching Vertigo and they're watching that scene where she points the tree out and... Bruce Willis is saying, well, the thing about the movie is makes it so, you know, great is the movie doesn't change, but you change. And so you remember the person you are when you're watching, which is true of all films. But there's it's just an interesting sort of take on Vertigo, because a lot of what's happening in Vertigo informs what's happening in 12 Monkeys. Do they have the uh, Bruce Willis's fake mustache framed there in the theaters that on display at the Senator? I don't know, but that is a great fake mustache um, <laughs> that he has in that in that film. Uh, have you ever talked about uh, Twelve Monkeys on a podcast? I don't think so. Yeah, we've, we've we got to do that somewhere, somewhere, it's sometime. Very, that's a very good movie too. Yeah, I love that one. It's a very good movie. Yeah, but um, anyway, back to Vertigo. <laughs> what are your uh, ratings and recommendations on this one, Nathan? Um, it's a ten out of ten to me. It is not. I don't think it's a perfect film. I think a lot of Hitchcock's films. We're not perfect, but it. Uh, I don't go to the movies to see perfect films. I think the idea of a perfect film is a little bit, you know, uh, problematic anyway. And you can end up like Scotty looking for this exact thing and not kind of accepting what's in front of you because there's a lot of really great stuff in Vertigo. I do think it is one of the great movies. And a lot of it is because, whether by accident or on purpose, whether out of, 
you know, some sense of narcissism or, or, or obsession, Hitchcock ends up putting some of his own frailties and shortcomings up on the big screen in this film. And these characters and these actors, you know, they really do a good job of evoking it. Yeah. And I think, um, trying to decide if I want to come in and, uh, (laughs) I think I, I think a nine that we're talking, this is not what I'm going to come in as, because I think that I do have some nitpicks with it, but um, yeah, I I have small nitpicks with it here and there, but I think it is a really good film going back to it. And I think you can tell the passion that Hitchcock had in this film because it does replicate so much of his own psyche. And yeah, uh, absolutely. If you um, haven't seen this one, what are you doing listening to this segment where we spoiled it? But (laughs) yeah, this is definitely one of his better film. I, I struggle calling this like one of his better films because I feel like this would, I feel like I've got 10 Hitchcock films that I would consider in this same range as far as quality wise. So, yeah, I think what it comes down to with Hitchcock when you get to a certain point is what is it? And that's the cool thing I think about his films is there is a point when he has a huge number of films that are in all about the same level of quality. What it really comes down to is what you as the viewer, which one do you, connect with the most and i don't know that i connect with scotty per se in that second half but that (laughs) i think that idea of a relationship being strained by the ghost if you will of what a person wants the other person to be as opposed to what they are i mean that's a pretty insightful and a pretty i think common thing for people to deal with, even maybe not at the level that Scotty's dealing with it. And so I think that that's what makes this a good thriller. It's not all the other stuff that, you know, typically in movies, we can't relate to the detective who's used as a patsy to cover up a murder, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't uh, relate to a, a man being confused for an FBI undercover agent. and <laughs> <laughs> Right. But I think you can latch an idea of someone who, in, you know, puts a strain on a relationship by by wanting trying to mold their partner to be someone who they may not be and sometimes we do those things when we look at what we think society wants of us uh that has nothing to do with the two people that are in the relationship yep no that that makes perfect sense and i think that's much more relatable than like you said some of other some of hitchcock's other stuff but all right well nathan i really appreciate you coming back to the show and I, i feel like you're on here at least every once every couple months, but <laughs> appreciate you coming on and talking Vertigo, one of your favorite Hitchcock films. And uh, you want to tell everyone where they can find you at if they don't already know? Yeah, you can find me at Phantom Galaxy at Podbean, but uh, excuse me, we're Phantom Galaxy Podbean.com. And uh, there are new episodes coming. We're starting a new season there. The summer got away from me in terms of Phantom Galaxy, but we'll, we will be back very soon. Trey will be over there with me as well. And Bill Van Vagel and uh, you can Victor's over there as well. Of course, I'm a horror movie podcast where I'm co-hosting with Trey, yourself, and and Victor Rodriguez and Matt Rawlings, who got the whole thing kind of jump started again. He's over there with us from time to time. He joins in as well. And uh, yeah, check out horror movie podcast. It's back. We've got a new episode that will be out probably around the time uh, that this was that this is out. I imagine mm-hmm. and. Then we'll also, uh, we've got several new things coming up and we are in early discussions about our October coverage. So check out HMP. Yeah, that's awesome. I There's no um, shortage of content with us together. So 
if you're looking for something <laughs> very true if you do like this there's plenty out there but uh yeah so um once again thank you nathan and now i'm going to move into the next segment where i will cover the uh more what's going on in hitchcock's life and some of the background of the films for um vertigo and north by northwest as i continue what seems like a very slow uh trot towards the towards the ending of uh, Hitchcock's career. Okay, I just got done talking to Nathan about Vertigo and now I'm going to run into the background and a little bit of the history and stuff on Vertigo and North by Northwest, and I will give my review of North by Northwest. In the summer of 1956, Hitchcock, Alma, and other members of the production crew traveled to South Africa to scout locations for the next film. He was planning on adapting South African writer Lawrence Vanderpost's novel Flamingo Feather. Jimmy Stewart was signed on, and he wanted to get Grace Kelly out of retirement for this one. He stated that he traveled to Africa for the atmosphere, but soon learned that he didn't actually like the atmosphere. That is um, classic Hitchcock where, uh, yeah, he talks about getting out of the studio and liking to see that stuff, but uh, he really doesn't. He's not going <laughs> to like the heat or anything else. But in addition to that, there was also the issue of cost and finding extras. Due to all of this, the project was dropped. After Flamingo Feather didn't work, he considered adapting The Wreck of the Merry Deer by Hammond Ennis. MGM had acquired the rights to the recently published novel and convinced Hitchcock to sign on for a one-film contract. Ernest Lehman was brought in to help write it, but the two couldn't make progress on the script. It seemed it was turning into little more than a courtroom drama. So Hitchcock moved on and finally found a novel that he would adapt with the Pierre Boulet and Pierre Ariad, who were better known for their combined pen name of Boulet Narsajak, novel uh, that was titled uh, Dentre les Morts, or The Living and the Dead. Hitchcock had interest in adapting their previous novel, which would eventually be made into the film Les Diaboliques. When they heard Hitchcock had interest in adapting that novel, and I believe the English title of that was She Who Was No More, it's claimed that they set out to write their follow-up novel with Hitchcock in mind. Hitchcock denied this was the case, but Truffaut claimed that is exactly what happened when the two were going back and forth in one of their interview sessions. The novel D'Entre de les Morts would eventually be turned into Vertigo. Maxwell Anderson was brought in for the first draft of the script, and he was also the initial writer on The Wrong Man, even though his script was replaced. He declined this offer, and Samuel Taylor was brought in. Taylor's agent urged him to accept because she wanted him to meet Hitchcock. He felt the film had to shed a lot of its romance angle and become more real to succeed. Hitchcock informed Taylor that that's exactly what Jimmy Stort said so it seemed like everyone was in agreement on that. Hitchcock had a short stint in the hospital, though, when they were working on this project due to her hernia. While he was out, Taylor continued working on the script. As they resumed working together, it was clear Hitchcock lacked energy and really wasn't himself. 
On March 9, 1957, Hitchcock woke up in pain, clutching his chest. He and Alma both thought he was having a heart attack. Instead, it was revealed that he had gallstones and had a successful operation two days later. It took him about two months to recover from this, and Taylor completed the script about a month into his recovery. The filming version of the script was ready in September. Now, Vera Miles dropped out, and I discussed this a little bit with Nathan earlier on, um, but dropped out due to being pregnant, and again, that was Hitchcock's new up-and-coming leading lady. Hitchcock wasn't very happy about this, and claimed it cost him a lot of money and Miles the momentum her career had. So he was pretty, um, pretty upset about the whole thing, even though we went into a little bit last time, they weren't exactly on great terms after she kind of shut him out a little. Kim Novak was picked as her replacement. Novak demanded that her hair always be a certain color, and she claimed that she wouldn't wear a gray suit. The script required her to be a brunette and wear a gray suit, so Hitchcock told her she could do her hair whatever way she liked and wear whatever she wants as long as it fits with the script. He recalls telling her, you do whatever you like, there's always the cutting room floor, and said, that stumped her, and that was the end of that dispute. So Hitchcock trying to use his best psychology to get people to agree with him, but either way, it seems like Novak gave in in the end. She apparently liked working with Hitchcock and felt he gave her the most freedom to act of anyone she ever worked with. Taylor said Hitchcock knew exactly what he wanted to do with this film, and you could tell he was passionate about it. Uh, Jimmy Stewart also commented that he could tell it was a personal film for him while making it, and Kim Novak remarked that it's like he tried to put himself in the skin of Stewart's character. So this is a lot of anecdotes surrounding what Nathan and I talked about earlier, where this was a very personal film for him, and he's almost viewing it as he is the Scotty character in this film. Filming began at the end of September, and it wrapped in December. So, I think that's a typical Hitchcock filming schedule for about this time in his career. He wanted to be as authentic as possible when building the set. He had the crew reconstruct a room from the local Empire Hotel down to every detail. They also constructed a replica of a local flower shop and used their flowers in the film. And this is all local to San Francisco, by the way, where the film is set. Before filming, he told Novak, you have a lot of expression on your face. I don't want any of it. He told another supporting actress to not act. He wanted them to perform strictly based on his instructions. Although modern critics have labeled Vertigo as the most profound film of Hitchcock's career, at the time, it was just considered another Hitchcock thriller, and really wasn't very successful. It's said to have bored audiences and was considered too long and too vague. Now, Hitchcock blamed an aging James Stewart for this, but I don't think that was necessarily the case. Either way, when he purchased the rights from Paramount, he buried the film in the vaults and wouldn't allow it to be released during his lifetime. When asked about how he felt about the reception the film received in Europe, he said he felt they understood the complexities of the situation. So, yeah, it did have a little bit of life in Europe, but not really anything to speak of in the U.S. So Nathan and I already reviewed Vertigo, so I will go ahead and keep moving on with my notes here. Before post-production began, Hitchcock was working on a new project, 
which had the working title of In a Northwesterly Direction. Hitchcock went to MGM, who, if you'll recall from just you know a few minutes ago, was the company that had the rights to The Wreck of the Mary Deer, and he was working on a one-film contract. He went to them and told them that The Wreck of the Mary Deer was taking too long to write, and he and Ernest Lehman would be moving on to a new project. Now, MGM took this as meaning that he was going to work on two projects for them instead of one, and were really excited. The idea that prompted the project was Hitchcock always wanting to film a chase scene across the faces of Mount Rushmore, and this isn't all that abnormal. When he's not basing something on a novel in the past, and it seems like he did this a lot earlier in his career, he gets an image, a single image in his head a lot of the times, and builds a movie around it. Lehman started brainstorming a story for this while Hitchcock was working on Vertigo. At one point, Hitchcock suggested that he wanted to do a scene in the middle of nowhere where a man was alone. He described that the man was lured there by the villains when suddenly a tornado comes along. This is pretty funny, but Lehman interrupted and asked, but Hitch, how would the villains create a tornado? To which Hitch replied, I don't know. Lehman suggested, what if a plane came out of the sky? And Hitch said, yes, it's a crop duster. We can plant some crops nearby. This is Lehman's recounting of how that scene came to be, but this is exactly what Hitchcock did. He came up with ideas and scenes that he thought he would be cool, and then he asked the writers in a very collaborative fashion to work around that. But their lives were about to take a bit of a turn. Alma revealed to Hitch in April of 1958 that she had cervical cancer and would need to undergo a risky surgery. Now, cancer at the time was pretty much a death sentence, and this surgery was very much, like, new for the time, and it was a cutting-edge type surgery. He continued with his filming schedule, but according to his biographer, he would leave and head to the hospital every day afterwards, weeping and convulsing on the way there. Norman Lloyd, who he worked with when Alfred Hitchcock Presents, recalls a particular instance when they were driving home together. Hitchcock started talking about Alma and then began to weep uncontrollably and said, what would it all mean without Alma? After all, everything I do in film is secondary to what it's really important. We've had a lot of anecdotes that theirs was kind of a loveless marriage or not necessarily the greatest marriage and all this stuff, but I mean, it seems like he was completely devastated by all accounts. I mean, there are several people that recall things from the time his daughter recalls how shooken up he was at the time, he seemed to have really cared about Alma. And I think that really came out at this point. Maybe he didn't show it all the time, but I don't know. That's my take on it. You can feel however you want about it. There's certainly a lot of information to the the contrary, where, you know, he loved working with her and he loved having her as business partner, but seems like he was pretty, pretty devastated by everything. I mean, I think he convinced himself that she wasn't going to make it. But the surgery worked, and Alma eventually recovered. Even through her recovery, he was still convinced she was going to die and told his daughter he couldn't live without her. Yeah, and it's funny, I think the first uh, I think the first time I saw a video of Hitchcock talking was when he was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award from somewhere or getting inducted into a Hall of Fame or something, and he, you know, he stands up and he what does he do? He compliments his wife and 
thanks her for everything. So that was a very touching thing. And that's why I always thought just going in that they, you know, they were a typical married couple. They were very much in love with each other and everything, but maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, let's get back on track. He eventually got back up and focused on his new film, which MGM gave him complete creative control over. He was going back to the well and planned on working with Cary Grant this time, as, again, he felt James Stewart was just too old for the film. Against the studio's wishes, Ava Marie Saint was his first choice for the leading lady. She said of Hitchcock that he had the ability to make you feel like you were the only person for the role, and that gave her a lot of confidence during filming. Edith Head was busy with other duties, and Hitchcock let Saint dress herself within his parameters. So I don't know, I don't know how strict those parameters were, but um, I'm assuming he gave her very specific directions. Hitchcock's biggest direction to her was to lower her voice. He even came up with a series of signals to make her remember while filming. Saint recalled in a later interview that her voice was still low to that day because of this film. When asked about the role, Grant said, All I have to do is the opposite of whatever Hitchcock wants. I just think in my head, what would he want and do the opposite? Now, this is kind of seen, though, from different takes. It's like just some bravado by Grant wasn't as, you know, clashing or butting heads with Hitchcock as it really appeared. I mean, I, I know they had their differences, but why would Hitchcock keep going back to him if it was really that bad? During production, the crew found out that they weren't allowed to use the actual Mount Rushmore and had to create a replica in the studio. This, of course, worked better for Hitchcock because he could control more things in the studio. They also built a model of the UN building because they weren't allowed to use that either, or at least a section of the UN building. Lieben recalls that he and Grant had quite a few battles in the backseat of a car on their way to film the crop dusting scene. Grant thought some of the story elements and scenes were ridiculous and that he wasn't writing a Cary Grant film. Hitchcock did respect Grant's opinions a great deal, though, as he was a seasoned actor. Even one time during this film, he took Grant's suggestion to move a camera a couple of inches one way to get a better shot, and it actually ended up working in the film. Hitchcock caught Saint drinking coffee out of a styrofoam cup and reprimanded her, and it was said that he was appalled or horrified by this, and he said to her, You're wearing a $3,000 dress, and I don't want the extras to see you coughing out of a styrofoam cup. He had his staff bring her a porcelain cup with a saucer, of course, to keep up the illusion for everyone. Filming began near the end of August 1958 and was completed in December. So again, pretty standard Hitchcock four to five month filming schedule. The studio execs thought the two hour plus cut was too long and asked him to cut it down a little bit. Fortunately, as I mentioned, he had final creative control on everything built into his contract and refused. North by Northwest premiered at Radio City Music Hall on August 6, 1959, and was received extremely well. It would end up being one of his most profitable films ever. So that's all I have for this time. I'm going to go ahead and go into a little bit of a review of North by Northwest. 
so this was released in 1959 and ran for 136 minutes. The tagline reads, it's a deadly game of tag and Cary Grant is it. Uh, The short synopsis I have here is advertising man Roger Thornhill is mistaken for a spy, triggering a deadly cross-country chase. So, yeah, he's kind of we open it up and I'm not going to spoil a lot, but the opening's kind of all over the place and it's a little scattered and it takes you a while to settle in. And this is I haven't re- I haven't watched this one in a long time, but it does take you about 15 minutes or so to settle into this film, I think, and really get into it. But once you get into it, this thing is a complete thrill ride that never really lets you down. I mean, it is one of the very best Hitchcock thrillers. And, you know, starting off, it has a very funny sequence. These men are trying to, you know, they think he's the undercover agent and they're trying to get him out of the picture. So what do they do? You know, something that it's actually pretty smart. It's smarter than it sounds. But they force alcohol down his throat and then put him in a, you know, situation where he's driving and gets picked up by the cops and uh, is brought in for a DUI. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's ridiculous in some of the scenes. I mean, it's a very I would say it's still very serious movie. and You can take it very serious. But a lot of the stuff in this movie is just so ridiculous and over the top. And I really do like that. Now, I did some Cary Grant bashing on my last episode, but first and I want to apologize to Jess for that. I'm sorry, uh, Jess from the horror cast. Thing is that I forgot about notorious when I was saying that I wasn't really a Cary Grant fan and I do like notorious a lot I think that's one of Hitchcock's best and then this film as well is just incredible and I think Grant specifically is incredible in this movie so I have to take a little bit of that back I think maybe my reception's mixed on Cary Grant yeah that's that's what I have to say about that he's just great in this film and so is Eva Marie Saint I think she plays her role very well And I just love the back and forth that the two have together from the time that they meet up on that train to the end of this film. It's all very believable and it's all very believable in the sense of, you know, when everything's finally out on the table, the cards are on the table. You really believe what's going on. It's maybe a little far fetched in the moment, but yeah, I think the cast does well in this does excellent in this, like most Hitchcock films and There are just so many big set pieces and unlike something like the man who knew too much with the big music hall sequence, that's just a little much for my taste or the original man who knew too much where there's just a long shootout at the end of that one. Hitchcock doesn't stay on any of them too long and you really feel for Grant's character in this because he is kind of all alone and there's no one coming to his aid and people know about this, but he's still in trouble with the law. He's still a fugitive and he's still in trouble with, you know, this other spy from another country and he's got all this stuff going on and it's just a terrible situation he's in and you really do feel for the guy, but he's doing the best he can and he's getting ahead of it. And for an, you know, an advertising agent, he's doing pretty well. He's a pretty smart guy, pretty sharp, and I like that. I think the writing in this one is great. And it's just really one of my favorite Hitchcock films, honestly. 
And I kind of forgot about that because it's been a long time since I've seen it. But it was definitely one of the first Hitchcock films that I had seen, and it apparently didn't stick with me. But when I went back and revisited it, it's awesome. Uh, the Mount Rushmore scene is is okay. It's pretty cool. But I think the crop dusting scene is excellent from the setup to everything else because you know something's going to happen. And then when it does, it doesn't disappoint. I think that's a fantastic scene. And Cary Grant might think it is a little ridiculous, but I think it's the highlight of the film, honestly. You have any number of great scenes that take place on this train. I mean, I would say this takes... A decent amount of this film takes place on a train. But yeah, I just really am a huge fan of North by Northwest. I'm so glad I went back through and revisited this one because honestly, it's such a good film. And I don't want to sit here kind of going in circles. If you haven't seen North by Northwest, then you definitely need to check it out. It's not horror at all. Uh, it's a little horrible what happens to the guy, but it's mainly like a spy thriller, even though Cary Grant's not a spy. So I think it's an excellent film. I would give it a 9.5 out of 10. I absolutely love that movie and urge you to go see it if you haven't. If you haven't watched it in a long time, I would urge you to go back to it as well. So that's going to do it for all the Hitchcock portion of this. I'll be taking a little break in October from Hitchcock as I do my October stuff. But in November, I will be back full force and hopefully... I don't know if we'll finish Hitchcock by the end of the year, but I will definitely be finishing Hitchcock in the next few months. So let's go ahead and keep going on with the next part of the show. Okay, so I'm here to introduce, I wouldn't say it's a new segment, but it's definitely a new take on something I've done in the past, and that is the franchise review. So for this one, it's going to be very measured. I'm going to take my time with it and spread this out over several different episodes and pretty much cover one or two of these movies, probably two after this one, in an episode on these segments. And I'm starting with, and this is probably no surprise to a lot of people who know me, but I'm starting with the Amityville franchise. And I'm going to say up front is if you look on Wikipedia under Amityville and you look at the section about the movies based on the Amityville haunting, I won't be covering any of those. Those are the ones that are all the you know, dumb Amityville vibrator, Amityville Karen, all that kind of stuff. No, I'm going to be covering the ones set in the original series section, which goes through uh, 96, I believe, with Dollhouse and then continues with the 
2017 version, and I'll also be talking about uh, the remake as well. And the 2017, I think, is the Amity of Awakening, but I'm only going to be covering those. I think it's like 10 or 11 movies. I will not be covering the other Amityville stuff. So sorry to disappoint. I don't have, you know, enough time. <laughs> time is too short as it is for me to go and watch those garbage movies. But I'm going to be starting with just the original 1979 Amityville horror. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little background and history on the film now, it's going to be slim pickings pretty much after this original one as far as production notes, anything like that. But I'm going to go through that, and then I'll give a little review of the film, and then we can move on to a new segment. So let's go ahead and get through the background that I have on this movie. So the film is based on Jay Anson's 1977 novel, The Amityville Horror. The book recounts the supposed true story of the paranormal events experienced by the Lutz family while living in the infamous house where Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his parents and siblings in 1974. Anson initially wrote a teleplay for the novel that was set to be aired on CBS. However, American International Pictures executive producer Samuel J. Arkoff reached out to CBS asking if he could produce it as a theatrical feature instead. In exchange for the rights, CBS would have the rights to air the film once it came to television. Arkoff hired Sander Stern to adapt the teleplay for the big screen. James Brolin was filming Night of the Juggler at the time and was skeptical when the role was offered to him. The screenplay wasn't finished at the time, so Brolin bought a copy of the novel to read. Now, Brolin claims that he was up until 2 a.m. reading it and jumped out of his chair at one point when a pair of pants fell onto the floor and made a sound in the room that he was reading the book in. He was sold at that point, but knew it would be challenging since he never had a role like this before. So I kind of like this that... Brolin was dismissive of it at first, but he went out and actually read the novel and said, you know, this is pretty good. I think I'm in. Now, Margot Kidder was cast in the role after her performance in Superman the year before. In an interview, she said, at that stage in your career, you just took the roles you were offered and you took the money. She did say, uh, though, later that she thought horror movies were fun to make. So, uh, Kidder's in it for the paycheck. I can't really <laughs> blame her. So, she ended up in this one, but not necessarily because she believed in the project. They initially wanted to film at the actual Amityville house on Long Island, New York, but local authorities wouldn't give them permission. They settled on filming in Toms River, New Jersey in August of 1978. They put out ads asking for homeowners willing to let their house be used for filming, and they got a hit. So at this house, they changed it around to look like the actual Amityville house. So if you're watching the film, that's not the actual house. That is one that they mocked up in New Jersey. Filming began in October of 1978. 
Local police and EMTs were used as extras, and the local volunteer firefighters provided the rain effects for some of the scenes. I think it's always cool when you get a whole town rallying behind a movie. You don't really see that these days as much, Um, although I do know some friends from Pittsburgh who were very excited when The Dark Knight was filming there, but that's or The Dark Knight Rises, but that's on a whole different level. This is more like the small town and everyone's kind of pitching in and being extras and everything else in the film. The location shooting wrapped in November, and the crew returned to the MGM lot in L.A. for the interior shots. This round of filming wrapped a couple months later on December 22nd. So they got done right before Christmas. To pull off the fly scene in the bathroom, they covered actor Rod Steger in sugar, water, and beer to attract the insects to them. Ooh, that's a that's a rough one. I don't know if I could do that. Um, when you're covered in all that crap, and then you have bugs swarming you. That's awesome that it is a completely practical effect. Like there's no illusions there. They really had these bugs swarming him, and I think that's one of the most famous scenes in the film. And it's really cool to know the background and history on it and how they put that together. Lalo Schifrin was brought on to score the movie. He was given the still of the house that would be used in the opening credits and would need to compose the main theme for that sequence. When asked about his inspiration, he said that he just imagined that three kids were about to move into the house and put together a haunted and distorted lullaby. To go along with the children's voices that he had, he used string instruments to create a chilling contrast between the vocals and the music. He would go on to be nominated for an Academy Award for the score, and I think it's a pretty good piece, honestly. It's not necessarily one of my favorites, but I think it's really well done listening back to it this time, and I knew to look out for it because I had done this preparation before watching the movie. It's been rumored that the score Schifrin composed was the same that was rejected for The Exorcist, but he's denied that in interviews. So um, Schifrin was up for the score of The Exorcist and submitted something, I think, but contrary to other beliefs, he said, you know, that's not true. That was completely different for this film. It premiered at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City on July 24th, 1979. And that's really interesting. I think they were doing an exhibit and showing all kinds of different films at the Museum of Modern Art. I think that's a pretty cool move. Um, you don't see something like that often, but it's pretty cool. It would receive a wide release three days later on July 27th of 1979. The studio attempted to spread rumors of weird things happening on the set, like was the case with The Exorcist. Brolin recalled he and Kidder were constantly being asked the question in interviews as far as like what was going on, were there weird things going on in the filming, and they really weren't sure what to tell them. Roland jokingly said, oh yeah, you wouldn't believe the stuff that happened yesterday. My lunch fell off the table in my lap. Kidder herself recalls that the producers told us we should say all of these terrible things happened on the set. It was all bullshit. Nothing happened, but it was funny. So it seems like there was just a bunch of manufactured BS around this movie. 
Um, I think one of the anecdotes I saw was, you know, when they were being interviewed one time, they were asking him what was going on or if it was real or not. And they had no idea what to say. And they kind of looked over at the producers, I think. And they were like, well, we'll never tell. So uh, very interesting. They were trying to drum up some interest in the movie. And I never thought of it. It seems like they were trying to pull off that exorcist feel. I wouldn't call this in any means like an exorcist ripoff. Yeah, it seems like that's what they were trying to go for and bank on the success of The Exorcist. Brolin and Kidder visited the real house at 112 Ocean Avenue while promoting the film. Neither of them actually believed the house was haunted, though. The movie opened in 748 theaters and brought in 7.8 million opening weekend, so really not bad in 1979 at all. In fact, the $13.3 million it brought in during its first week was the highest ever for AIP at that time. It wasn't done, though, because by September it had brought in $41 million, and by the end of its theatrical run had made $86.4 million. And that's all domestically, by the way. It made over 20 times its budget and held the record for the highest-grossing independent film until... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out and surpassed it in 1990. Adjusted for inflation, it ranks as the 8th highest grossing horror film with 310.3 million adjusted. So that's that's pretty good. I mean, I would have never thought that this was one of the highest ranking horror films of all time if you adjust inflation. I mean, 86.4 million horror movies are thrilled to make that today that would be you know incredible for them to make 86.4 million only a handful of horror movies make this every year and you've got to go back you know what 50 years at this point 50 some years yeah that's that's just incredible in what has become a tradition by this point I'll go ahead and give the review from Roger Ebert at the time In his review, he described the film as dreary and terminally depressing, writing that the problem with the Amityville horror is that, in a very real sense, there's nothing there. We watch two hours of people being frightened and dismayed as we ask ourselves, what for? If it's real, let it have happened to them. Too bad, Lutzes. If it's made up, make it more entertaining. If they can't make up their minds, why should we? So I get what he's saying here to an extent. Like he's saying they're trying to walk the line to be in, to maintain like the realism when also having some kind of over the top and horror stuff that we probably wouldn't believe is real. He's kind of wanting them to pick a side here, but after the film was released, it ran into several legal problems. George and Kathy Lutz, who you know were the real life. Uh, family that lived in the Amityville house uh, claimed they were given half the rights to Anson's book and that they never received any proceeds from the film. An attorney came out and admitted he helped the Lutzes make up the story, and George himself admitted he was given a net amount of 100000 after the film's release in addition to the 100000 they got from the book. So they didn't make out too bad. I know that was that film made a lot of money, but You guys really had no involvement in it at all. You just had half the book rights. So interesting to see that they took them to court for that. But but yeah, 
Uh, as far as home video releases, Warner Home Video released a clamshell VHS in 1983, and it also received its first DVD release in 2000. It got its first Blu-ray release, which I think is the one that I own, in 2008. And then last September, Vinegar Syndrome released it on 4K for the first time. So that's really all the history I want to go into with the Amityville Horror. So I will set up the movie a little bit and then get into my thoughts and review on it. The film was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, runs for 118 minutes, so almost two hours. And I'm looking at Letterboxd right now, and I love the both the poster and the um, kind of banner image they have on top of it of the house with the glowing windows. Very cool pieces of art there. But the tagline, of course, is, For God's sake, get out. And the synopsis reads, George Lutz and his wife Kathleen moved into their Long Island dream house with their children only for their lives to be turned into a hellish nightmare. The legacy of a murder committed in the house gradually affects the family, and a priest is brought in to try and exorcise the demonic presence from their home. Uh, that's not a great synopsis, honestly. The priest comes over to basically just bless the house. It's an important distinction that they knew going in that the murders had happened here and all this stuff. They didn't know it was haunted, but... George really starts acting weird. People who come to visit the house, especially, you know, a nun comes to visit the house. The priest come to visit the house and they get freaked out. And yeah, there's some bad omens and stuff going on with this. And George stops, starts acting worse and worse. And the, they kind of untangle this, what's going on and happening. But honestly, so the Amityville Horror is one when I was first, you know, brushing up on my horror, quote unquote, classics. This was one that came up a lot of the time. And I think most of the time, I the idea that I had at the time was if it was remade, because there were a ton of remakes going on at this time, then it's got to be a classic horror movie. I don't know if I necessarily say that about the Amityville Horror. I think it's a solid movie. I really do but I don't think it deserves that classic status, and I don't think a lot of people give it that. So I'm not saying that people put it up too high or anything like that. It's definitely a memorable film, I would say, but uh, my main critique is that it just runs a little too long and goes on for a little too long. Um, I do enjoy it, and I enjoy some of the supernatural stuff that happens in the house. I like that it is based kind of on the real story of what supposedly happened, and they use the murders that happen there. They make that play into the plot. So it's not just the paranormal stuff, but uh, you get the connections between the original murder and what's going on with George right now. I think Brolin plays this role spectacularly. I think Kidder's okay, too. I've never been a huge Margot Kidder fan, but she does a decent job here. I think... Everyone pretty much does a decent job. I think there's some very terrifying moments. There's moments with windows coming down that I think are very unsettling. Uh, there's, of course, the aforementioned bathroom scene, which I think is very iconic. There's a scene in the basement, which I think is very well done. So I think my biggest problem are there smatterings of really good scenes all over this movie. 
but it never really hits on all cylinders. There's, I think they go in an interesting direction with what happens to that priest who, you know, came into the house to bless it. I love the direction that goes. But at some point, I think they're retreading a lot of the same ground as they go through it. I mean, I really, if I was Kidder in this point, because you have Brolin who is, and I think this is works for the film. I think it goes into some of the unsettling nature of it. I'm not calling this a negative at all. But Brolin is, he just married Kidder, Kidder's character in this. And she had three kids, so he's like the stepfather to these kids. And at some point, he starts snapping at these kids and saying crap to these kids. And, you know, if I was Kidder, if I was the mom in this situation, I'd be saying something or uh, trying to get help or something. And she takes a long time to get help. But I actually like the those sequences because I think they play up kind of the disturbing nature of this and seeing the change in George. And I think we get a good idea um, and just seeing how George changes from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. And of course you have that iconic ending scene, which, you know, I love it. I love the way the, the film ends. I think it's pretty cool. And I like a lot of the scenes along the way. I just wish they had maybe, uh, not made this a two-hour movie. I don't know if it needed to be that. I think they could have definitely shortened up some of the stuff. But yeah, I I like the Amityville horror overall. Um, like I said, I think there's decent performances. I think there's some good scares here and there for sure. You know, I will say that George kind of gives me um, very high anxiety when he's not uh, taking care of his business and paying his bills and things like that. But that I think those scenes are necessary to kind of give you the kind of picture that they're in, the situation they're in, and the stress that's on him. Uh, I will say they do a lot of a lot of the stuff that we would come to see as tropes in paranormal films. I wouldn't say at this point it'd be fair to call them tropes, you know, as far as like waking up at three o'clock in the morning and you know he's cold throughout the house. These are things that we would see smattered throughout most paranormal films. I'm trying to think if this stuff was in other movies before it. I'm sure it was, but either way, I think that the fact of that is kind of influential in what would come later. But, but yeah, I like what goes on with the priest. I like the um, some of the supernatural things. I like the scene with his co-worker's wife later. I think she brings a good aspect into this, and you know, we get the aspect of like a medium and things like that. So, I think this film has had its hand in, and I'm. I'm blanking now. There could be something before this that I'm just not thinking of, but uh, nothing on this scale, I think, has done these kind of paranormal tropes before this. And I could be blanking. Please let me know if you uh, can think of anything. But either way, uh, you're going to be surprised. I don't, I know for sure this is not going to be the highest ranking film in the series and the franchise for me. Um, you would think it would be, but. I think it's a very solid paranormal film. I've listed all the things I like about it. And I think if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. I would come in, I think, around uh, probably around a 7 or a 7.5 on this one. Let's go with a 7, I think. I do own this one on Blu-ray. I probably won't pick up the Vinegar Syndrome 4K unless it's deeply discounted, but I think it's a solid movie, and I think it would especially be good for, I remember loving this when I was first checking out 
horror movies or getting not first checking out horror movies, but first like digging into horror movies, like I was mentioning earlier. I think it's I think remember really liking it then, and I think it's good for people getting into the genre. So with that being said, um, next time I will go into some detail on Amityville 2 and Amityville 3D. So those are the next ones up on the list. Uh, Like I said, I won't have as much to go into as far as background, but I really did enjoy learning some of the things that went on, even though there wasn't a ton as far as the background on this film. But uh, we can go ahead and move on to the next segment. It's okay, it was just a bad dream. I heard it again. No more nightmares tonight. Okay, champ? Daddy! This is getting ridiculous. This is an old house. There's bound to be bumps in the night. Peter drew this? Yes. Is he all right? Peter has an overactive imagination. No more nightmares. No more. That's right. I wish I had someone I could talk to about the things that were happening in my house. Mom? Mom? Peter, sometimes you have to make hard decisions to protect your family. What is that? The banging. Enough! Enough! You don't hear anything, Peter. You have a beautiful imagination. It's going to get you into trouble one day. Hey, everyone. So I wanted to take a little chunk out of this episode to get in a few reviews of horror movies that I've recently seen from 2023. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. But I did have a chunk of these a few I think at least a couple of these most people haven't heard of or aren't talking about or anything like that. Uh, Maybe some people have seen them, but I just wanted to get these reviews in for these movies so you can decide whether to check them out for your 2023 list or not. So I will have four 2023 horror releases to talk about, and I want to start probably with the one I think is the weakest first. Um, and that is called Remember. And in between Re and Member, there is a forward slash. And this is a Japanese movie on Netflix. And I don't think 
a lot of people are going to be happy with this one, but I found it fun in its own ways. And the title is basically a play on what happens in the movie because, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but uh, this is directed by Eichiro Hasumi and runs for 103 minutes. Tagline for this one is Find the Body. And the synopsis reads, Six high schoolers stuck in a murderous time loop must find the scattered remains of an unknown victim to break the curse and finally see another day. Yeah, Remember plays into this because they're essentially thrown into this, seems like another world at night almost. They're in the school at night, these six students, and they're tasked with finding all of the body parts for this person who died and reassembling them in this chapel. And the whole while they're being attacked and chased by this kind of evil, I don't know how to describe it. It's very Japanese in its design for sure. There's a couple of aspects of this one. So we do get to see a girl. We focus on a girl at the beginning who is very lonely, kind of all on her own. And we see her normal school life. And then that night, she's suddenly in this environment and we see people dying and we don't really know what's going on. It's kind of jarring. And then we learn that they're playing this game and they're trying to solve this puzzle. And it seems like there's not really stakes at first. You know, they die and then they just start over the next night with their progress saved on the body. They kind of have to learn to work together. And a girl who's very much a loner is thrown in with like the class president and, you know, one of the popular athletes and all this stuff. It's very tropey in that sense. <laughs> it's it's extremely tropey in the, you know, high schoolers from all different backgrounds getting together sense. And it's extremely tropey in just the Japanese sense. I mean, we have a beach scene because, of course, we do. And really, this starts out kind of somber and much more like a horror movie. And then once they start working together and figuring things out, it kind of gets more upbeat for a minute, uh, which is very weird. Then we come out on the other side and it gets very real because there's a new twist that happens with the the whole thing. Uh, there's a couple twists, really. And I don't want to spoil or ruin any of that for people, but honestly, I don't think a lot of people are going to like this one. I liked its weird Japanese charm. And of course, as someone who watches a lot of anime and a lot of Japanese stuff, I'm into that. I mean, I can get into that. But I'm going to say right now, the visual effects are awful. I think they're terrible. Um, they look really bad. And at one point at the beginning, I was thinking of turning this off because in that first sequence, the visual effects are pretty bad. And, you know, as it went on, I kind of got used to them and used to the the weird violence that was going on in this this movie, and honestly, I kind of like the story. I think it's a little, you know, there are plenty of these death games or whatever in anime and Japanese stuff, but I think it's kind of unique in the premise that it's going for, and I dig the story and just seeing these characters come together and bond, and I love that part. So, yeah, I don't know. Does it succeed as a horror movie? I mean, I think it is uh, frightening, especially as you get to the end, there is a very disturbing scene 
with this monster eating something and it's it's extremely disturbing to me and the consequences that come from that is uh, they're pretty dire so yeah i think there's some good horror moments in it for sure but it, the effects are just so bad they kind of take you out of it um this one's really about if you like the scenario they set up and you like the characters kind of coming together and uniting in this one goal that they have to do I think you could find some enjoyment in that. Uh, again, it's got it's got some goofiness to it for sure. Uh, there's no reason for it to be as upbeat as it is in the middle, but I guess uh, that makes the the fall at the end of this one or near the third act that much more striking. Honestly, I'd have a hard time recommending this to a lot of people. Myself, I would give it like a six point five, and I found a lot of enjoyment out of it. I think most people are going to be a lot lower than that, and Looking at Letterboxd, I see a lot of a lot of very low scores on this, but I enjoyed it. If what I'm saying to you seems kind of interesting or you think you could get into it, then it's definitely worth checking out. I mean, it's streaming on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, it doesn't cost you anything else to get into it. But I don't really hear people talking about this one. And I think that's because Netflix just kind of pushes out a lot of random <laughs> movies and shows from uh, Korea and Japan and everything else. And people might not know about them, but I, th you know, I thought this was fun and decent enough, but your mileage is going to vary a lot before warned. If you go into this, if you watch probably about 30 minutes in and you're still not digging it, it's probably not going to be for you. But that was just something that I enjoyed for what it was. It's not going to, Listen, if this one makes my my horror list at the end of the year, uh, it's going to be pretty disappointing. Actually, yeah, it's right on the cusp as we speak. So I don't think it's necessarily going to to make my list at the end of the year, but it was a lot of fun for me, even though it's got bad effects and some pretty jarring moments. OK, next up, I'm going to go with a more recent one. And. This one, a lot of people already know about, and a lot of people have seen it. It was in theaters, um, and it is Cobweb, directed by Samuel Bodine. And it was in theaters, but a couple weeks later came to VOD, and you can rent it on regular VOD. So this isn't the, the premium VOD or anything. You can go out and rent this one for 7 bucks, and I think it's definitely worth it. And I'll read the uh, tagline first. As sooner or later, family secrets creep out, which I think is pretty cool. The synopsis reads, Eight-year-old Peter is plagued by a mysterious, constant tapping from inside his bedroom wall. One that his parents insist is all in his imagination. As Peter's fear intensifies, he believes that his parents could be hiding a terrible, dangerous secret and questions their trust. Cobweb is... A pretty creepy and cool movie. I think the thing that I like most about Cobweb is just its atmosphere. It has a really good foundation to it. I mean, it's set at Halloween time. So, and it plays in heavily to that. I mean, you have a lot of Halloween themes in this one and a lot of fall themes. And then you have... The story that I usually gravitate towards, and I did in something like The Wretched from a few years back, or, oh 
I'm blanking. I'm trying to think summer of 84, things like that are just these uh, kids who have to go through perilous situations. And I really do like that scenario that's set up here. Peter is very much this kind of backward kid and he can't really help it. I mean, his parents kind of shelter him. They hold him back and won't let him go trick or treating or anything like that. And really, I mean, you get why as the movie goes along, but honestly, he's bullied at school and he doesn't really have anyone sticking up for him or an outlet until he gets a substitute teacher who very much kind of meddles and <laughs> puts herself into his life and tries to figure out what's going on. And this isn't, I'll say this one takes a couple of twists and turns. You're not really sure where it's going to go. I would say at the end, overall, I don't love the direction it went. But... I'm trying to think if it would have been any better if it went some other way. This is such an atmospheric and eerie movie, and I do love that about it. And I think it really does go there near the ending. And I mean, there's some pretty shocking moments in this, especially, you know, Peter is talking to this uh, entity in his walls or things like that. And that entity, you know, tells him to stand up for himself and what comes out of that is pretty shocking and honestly yeah i i love the halloween vibes i love the fall vibes of this movie we don't have enough stuff set on halloween and this is another one of those entries we're starting to get more and more i think the actors all do a really good job in this one and i think this one's honestly a little bit underrated as far as you know I don't think it got much press to get out there in the box office. And I thought, honestly, this was just going to be another one of these paint by numbers, very standard horror movies that gets dumped out in theaters. But I think it's a little bit more than that. Now, if you haven't watched this, I would urge you to wait until October to watch it closer to Halloween, preferably. And it's probably going to be cheaper by then as well. But I think it just has that. I think that would raise it that much higher for you if you watch it in October when you've got when you know you've got the fall weather outside and you've got your horror movie marathons going on and everything like that I think it's perfect for that and I think you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it that way but yeah cobweb remains creepy and eerie and honestly I wish I could put it higher than I did but there are certain elements about it that just don't go far enough for me. They don't. They could have done some more, but there are so many cool scenes and moments in this movie that I just loved. And for that, it's going to stick around. I bet this one will end up making my top 25 at the end of the year, but we'll have to we'll have to see on that one. But if you haven't, I know there's already been some other podcasts to cover this one. This isn't as much as a, a secret as some of these other ones, but I really enjoyed Cobweb, and I think a lot of people will too. I mean, especially if you're into that type of movie I mentioned where it focuses on kids or teenagers and how they go through things and deal with things that they really don't have a lot of control over. And I mean, there are, and I'm almost talking myself up on score-wise on this one as we go through, and I think I might go up. I think I might go up a half uh, half a point from where I was. I think I'm going to come in at an eight. You know, I was going to come 7.5. I 
I think I'm going to go full blown eight on this one because I think it deserves it. And it's something we don't get a ton of, you know, this story involving kids and set at Halloween time with all the Halloween decorations and stuff around. And there's a very cool jack-o'-lantern scene later on in the movie, but uh, I do have my problems with it, but they're really minor, honestly, and I can forgive the film a lot for that. Cobweb is absolutely worth going and checking out, especially if you want to wait until October and rent it then. All right, let's bounce back to another international horror film, and this time we're going to take one from uh, Korea, South Korea. And that is Seer or Sire. That's S-E-I-R-E. And this is directed by Park Kang. Runs for 102 minutes, and the synopsis reads, Sire is the sacred period after the birth of a baby. Wu Jin, the father of a newborn, ignores his wife's concerns with Sire to visit a funeral. Soon after, his family begins to experience a series of mysterious and eerie events. So I want to put a big warning at the beginning of this one. This film is not traditional in its horror. This is very much a psychological horror film. A lot of the horror happens in what this guy witnesses and sees. There's not going to be a lot of blood and guts. There's not going to be a lot of straightforward horror. It's very much a more of um, an atmosphere piece. It's really more about what this character's feeling and the tensions and everything else as he goes about his life. It's very mundane in that sense, but I think it's still pretty cool. And honestly, it does have the horror in there. It is very much, like I said, psychological, but it deals with a lot of those folk superstitions that uh, come from you know, this in particular is coming from Korea, that during this period, the mother is not supposed to leave the baby and they stay with all these charms and everything. And really, our main character's mother-in-law insists on this and has these charms and everything around. And there's certain rules. And one is that you don't go to a funeral because you can bring that negative energy home to the baby. And I don't want to go too much into the plot stuff, but essentially, Wu Jen decides to go to this funeral of this woman that he dated for a long time. And you find out that it wasn't actually that long ago that they broke things off. I mean, it was kind of a a very quick turnaround with his new wife that he's having that he's having a baby with. But yeah, that's that's essentially what we're dealing with. And he goes because he dated this this woman forever and they were they went to college together and he has all of his college friends there that he catches up with and finds out that she had a sister so you can already see the where this is kind of going in that aspect but he goes home and he has kind of these waking nightmares and everything after this and we don't know if all this is real or if it's not and Honestly, it's a hard one to talk about because it's more of a feeling. It's more of you have to feel this film and go into it for yourself. If you like the slower, more subdued Korean style of horror, I'm trying to think of one of those now. I feel like the wailing is very subdued as well for most part of it, but this is even more subdued than that. 
it's very much into that psychological aspect. It's very much looking into the mind of this guy and whether, you know, these taboos have been broken and are affecting the baby or not. And things get rocky with his marriage and all of this because he went to the funeral because something is revealed about that as well. So it's very, I mean, he's dealing with the guilt as well from this, from his ex dying in the way that she did. And there's just a lot going on and a lot to process. I would almost call this like a, a drama and then horror after that of the, again, of the psychological variety, but uh, there's some, really good sequences and moments in these dreamlike events. And yeah, I, I enjoyed this one. I think it's a mixed bag, honestly. And I don't think it's going to be, I know it's not going to be for everyone. I'm not going to say I don't, I don't think it's going to be for everyone, but yeah, I enjoyed it. And it's this director's first feature. So I think that's pretty cool that he's, uh, he's starting with this one. It's a pretty good start. As far as ratings go, I think I would have to give this one probably a seven. I'd keep it in the seven range and say it's definitely worth checking out um, if you're into that kind of slower, more psychological horror film. And that one's available for rent on, you know, Vudu, Amazon. I think it's like four bucks now, so not too bad. And the last one is one that I know a lot of people have probably seen or talked about at this point. And that is From Black, which is streaming on Shudder. Director is Thomas Marches. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but runs for 110 minutes. The tagline reads, Darkness is coming home. And the synopsis is, A young mother who's crushed by guilt and shame after the disappearance of her young son five years previously is offered a bizarre opportunity to learn the truth and set things right. Is she willing to pay the terrifying price for a chance to hold her boy again? Okay, this one is getting less than favorable reviews from a lot of people I know. Although I know my buddy Jason Taylor gave this one about in the same range I'm in. But everyone else kind of fell flat on it. Honestly, I've seen a lot of comparisons to A Dark Song. And I get those comparisons for sure. I think this is better than A Dark Song. It doesn't have those... Uh, listen, the ending of a dark song to me is awful. I hate it. And there's some things within a dark song that I don't like as well. I still like a dark song. I think it's a pretty solid film and not too far off as a rating from this one. But from black, it starts out with this mother who is kind of into uh, drugs and she's not really watching her son. And yeah, like the synopsis said, he disappears. When we flash forward, she's going to these meetings and we find out she's kind of getting her life together, but it's still very hard to deal with, as you would assume it would be in that situation. I can't imagine. Because she feels a lot of guilt for what happened. But she was with her kind of ex at that point when her son was missing. And he's kind of a he's not kind of a he's a very terrible person. And he uh, <laughs> he he pops back up later in the movie. But really, I loved the way that this one built and similarly to a dark song, you know, this person comes in and says, well, I've can give you a chance to get your son back. You know, it's happened for me, but he maybe isn't necessarily completely truthful about what she has to go through. And she's skeptical, of course, but has to go through basically a series of 
days and trials and things to in order to get her son back. And I loved the antagonist in this film, the the um, the evil presence in this film. I absolutely loved it. Maybe that's where people are. I'm not sure what problems people are having with this one, but I thought that was great. Uh, I liked the characters in this one. I mean, I was all around. I was going to skip this one. And I think I saw someone give a positive review of it. And I can't remember who it was. It might have been Jason Taylor that I saw had given this a positive review. And I think that was the only one that I really saw give it a decent score. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to check this one out. It's on Shutter. It's not costing me anything. And I really enjoyed it. I don't know what problems, like I said, people have with it. But I think it's a fun movie. Uh, you might want to go in uh, tam- tempering your expectations for sure. But I I really liked the atmosphere and the style of this movie. And I've said, you know, atmosphere is the buzzword of this episode, I feel like. But hey, I enjoyed it. Um, I personally think it's a little bit better than a dark song for me. I think it ends a lot better than a dark song. And I just liked the whole journey of going through this stuff. So I would come in at like a 7.5 on this one. And I think it's absolutely worth a stream on Shutter if you're into that type of thing. Maybe someone else can better articulate the problems they had with it. And so maybe read someone else's review on that first. But hey, for what it was, I really enjoyed it. I like this type of movie where you have to deal with like dark forces to try and get something back. And you're essentially, you know, trying to make a deal with the devil. And I really appreciate that. And I like the occult stuff when we're in horror movies. And yeah, I... I can't get enough of that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed it. And I think a certain section of people might as well. All right. So those were the four movies that I wanted to quickly cover. I don't think any of them. These are ones I've been waiting to talk about for a while. Some of them. So I just wanted to get this out there and talk about it because I know a couple of these. I know no one's talking about. And I think I don't think a lot of people are talking about from black. I know that's an older one came out a long time ago, but Hey, I wanted to get my my thoughts and reviews out there on those ones. So with all that being said, I'll go ahead and close this part out and we can move on.
Hello, and welcome to another one of these anniversary segments. And this time, we're going to be looking back on and celebrating 55 years of Rosemary's Baby. Now, when we're talking about Rosemary's Baby, it's something very different from Night of the Living Dead and very different from Dawn of the Dead. First and foremost, there's not as much of the blood or guts or anything like that. But it's also just a very different type of film and kind of film from those ones. It's much more, which I don't want to say it's much more psychological, because you do get that stuff in Dawn of the Dead, but this is very much about the mental capacity of uh, Rosemary and what she has to go through and endure through all of this. So we can go ahead and start and go through the background and development of this one. And then I'm going to go ahead and talk about the film and what I like about it and really how I think it shaped things or really impacted things going forward. So Paramount executive Robert Evans was approached by William Castle, who was known for, you know, his low budget horror, sci-fi, gimmicky type films. And he approached Evans with a pre-published version of the book Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin. Castle urged Evans to buy the film rights, and Evans agreed. The stipulation, though, was that Castle could produce the film, but he wasn't allowed to direct it, and I think that was the, the right call. No offense to William Castle. I do like a lot of his films, but... I don't think he's on the level to direct something that Rosemary's Baby would end up being. According to Francois Truffaut, Alfred Hitchcock was offered the film, but he declined. That would have been very, a whole nother. I can't imagine Hitchcock directing this thing, so I could, I could see where he declined it. But Instead, Evans hoped to convince Roman Polanski to make his American debut with the film as he liked his earlier European films. Evans sent him a copy of the book, and apparently he read it nonstop. Polanski expressed interest to write and direct the film. So he agreed to Paramount on a $1.9 million budget, and that would include $150,000 salary for himself. So really, I mean, in today's numbers, that would be small, but that's a pretty large budget for the time. And, I mean, that's a decent uh, salary for Polanski as well. But uh, Polanski took three weeks to put together a 272-page script, keeping so close to the novel that it even included uh, dialogue sections directly from the book in the script. Casting began the summer of 1967, and Polanski had a number of actresses in mind, for the lead role of Rosemary, including Jane Fonda, Patty Duke, Goldie Hawn, Tuesday Weld, or even his fiancée, Sharon Tate. And I think Patty Duke was the one who would play the role in the TV movie sequel in the 70s. Evans, however, was looking for a bigger name, as he wasn't sure the novel alone would sell the film. At this point, the novel hadn't been released, and it was going to be fairly new, I think, by the time the film came out. 
Mia Farrow had recently gained notoriety from marrying Frank Sinatra, as well as her role on the show Peyton's Place. Polanski agreed to cast Farrow, even though she didn't really fit his vision for the role. He was looking for someone who was a little less wispy than Mia Farrow, and someone who could, in his words, really embody that girl-next-door persona. This reportedly made Frank Sinatra furious that she accepted the role because he wanted Farrow to abandon her acting career altogether. For the role of Guy Woodhouse, Polanski, who is Rosemary's husband, if you're not familiar, Polanski wanted Robert Redford, but Redford turned him down. Jack Nicholson was also considered briefly, but Polanski landed on John Cassavetes for the role. And I think he does great in this film. I think the entire cast does great in this film, but we can get into that later. For the supporting cast, he drew sketches of what he wanted them to look like, and the Paramount casting department used them to fill roles. Now, I'm not sure if this is a standard practice, but I don't know if I've heard of someone physically sketching the people, what they wanted the people to look like, and then filling it. Principal photography started on August 21st of 1967 in New York City. When it came to filming a scene where Rosemary wanders into traffic, Polanski convinced Pharaoh to walk into actual traffic by pointing to her pregnancy padding and stating, no one will hit a pregnant lady. So he's going to have her walk into actual New York traffic to get a scene. And I think you, if you've seen the film, you know what scene he's talking about, but he's going to actually have her go into traffic during this filming. As no one else would agree to do it, uh, Polanski took the handheld camera himself and followed her into the traffic. So I guess never ask someone something you're not willing to do yourself, and Polanski went right there with her. In September, they moved filming from New York City to Paramount Studios in Hollywood. They constructed the Bramford Apartments on sound stages for the interior shots. The filming wrapped three weeks behind schedule and was over budget by a whopping $400,000. A lot of this was attributed to Polanski's attention to detail when filming. It's said some shots took up to 51 takes before Polanski was satisfied. And we've seen this, you know, I talked about this on the Dawn of the Dead history anniversary episode that I did, or the segment that I did where Romero did the same thing and took so many shots that it was able to be reconstructed into something that was pretty much wholly different for the international version, which, so yeah, you do have those certain directors who are just uh, sticklers for attention to detail. Kubrick, of course, is one of those. Hitchcock was one of those. seems like Polanski was one. Uh, Romero may have been one. So a lot of times it just seems like, you know, they're not satisfied until it's perfect. And, Honestly, you can't argue with the results, at least in these specific scenarios. There was another delay when Farrow asked Evans to release her from her contract during filming. Frank Sinatra served her divorce papers in front of the entire cast and crew, and she wanted out to try and save her marriage. Of course, even if she did, I think it would have been in vain, but... Uh, Evans convinced her to stay by showing her an hour of rough footage and assuring her she'd be nominated for an Academy Award. Now, she was not nominated for an Academy Award. 
Academy Award nominations went to Polanski for Best Screenplay from an Adapted Work and to Ruth Gordon, who actually won for Best Supporting Actress. And that's, you know, that's really the biggest win for the film was Ruth Gordon. And I'll get into this in a little bit, but I think she perfectly personifies that annoying, nosy, uh, stereotypical, what we would think of like a New York neighbor from the time would be. So, yeah, she would. I think she won Best International Actress or Best Foreign Actress in a couple of different uh, award ceremonies around the world. Um, She would also be nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress, but she didn't really win anything from the American award circuit, and I don't really think Polanski did either. Maybe he won a Hugo Award or something. I don't know. But, yeah, either way. Um, I don't think it would have saved the two-year marriage of Pharaoh and uh, Frank Sinatra, but seriously, if you haven't, while I'm on this tangent, if you haven't checked into the history of Mia Farrow and her wild lifestyle, I don't, I don't want to say lifestyle. I think it's a wild life story. In as we get into the later years, because you know she was with Woody Allen for twelve years, and they never married, but. She had so many adopted children. I mean, she had children, biological children, with Woody Allen, but she also had a ton of adopted children, and I think she had 14 children in total. I think a lot of those were adopted, but her adopted daughter with her ex-husband, Sunyi Previn, and the details are very he said, she said on this, but apparently started an affair with... Woody Allen, you know, and depending on whether you're talking to uh, Mia Farrow or Sunyi Previn, <laughs> that's either before, you know, it was the reason that she broke things off with Allen, or it was after things have already been rocky in their relationship. So they started a relationship, and, you know, I think Farrow had found nude photos of them together. And yeah, man, Woody Allen is just a complete and absolute creep. Even if you believe like he had nothing to do with her before they started a relationship, because remember, uh, she was Mia Farrow's daughter and adopted daughter, and they were together for 12 years. So even if you believe nothing happened or anything like that, which Allen says, still pretty scummy for a 57 year old to be going after a 21 year old who is the you know adopted daughter of your current girlfriend. And then there were the allegations of that, you know, that Woody Allen sexually abused one of their daughter, one of Pharaoh's daughters as well. And I don't think anything ever happened of that. But then there was also the other, the flip side of Pharaoh who, you know, one of her sons came out and wrote a a scathing expose about how she, abused a lot of the children a lot of her children and including like leaving one who had polio out in a shed or something all night or something like that I don't know what it was but it's just wild the whole the whole thing with her and Woody Allen her adoptive daughter and the child abuse and all this stuff is just crazy and this is why I don't get attached or get too close to any Hollywood figures because Man, it seems like 80, 90% of them are into some 
bad stuff and i <laughs> or at least some some weird stuff i have no no clue man but the the stories that come out about all of these actors and actresses are insane and this one especially like uh, this is something that you would write for tv and film you know <laughs> this kind of a story but it's it's really sad all around anytime there's child abuse or anything like that so i don't want to make light of this it's just absolutely insane if you go into the stories in the background of uh, Mia Farrow's life. So let's get back in to the uh, the actual history talk here. And filming finally wrapped on December 20th of 1967. So, you know, they started in August and, you know, around four months, almost exactly four months later, they stopped filming in December. Film was released on June 12th of 1968 and would go on to make 33.4 million at the box office. So, you know, that's that's pretty good especially on even if it went over, you know, a little over 2 million dollar budget, 33.4 million that ain't bad. Now, to get in a little bit of a uh, physical media, the first DVD version of the film was released in 2000 and the Criterion Collection released the first Blu-ray on October 30th of 2012. Unfortunately, I don't own that one, and that one is out of print. But there will be a 4K coming out this October, and it has a really cool cover. I'm not sure who's putting it out or anything, but I went ahead and pre-ordered it. But uh, the cover is leagues better than that garbage they put on the front of the Exorcist 4K that's coming out. And I will not be buying that because that cover is abysmal. But I did buy the Rosemary's Baby 4K, and that is coming out this October. I think October the 13th, which is pretty cool. A made-for-TV sequel called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby was released in 1976, and it wasn't received very well. I think, again, this had the, uh, I think this had Patty Dukes playing Rosemary in this one, but this one had no relation to the sequel novel Son of Rosemary. It, it kind of follows the life of Adrian as he grows up and starts to try to take power, I believe. I haven't seen it, but yeah, apparently not very well received. That title also terrible. Look what's happened to Rosemary's Baby. I mean, come on. Michael Bay was attached to produce a Rosemary's Baby remake in 2008, but mercifully that fell through. A four-hour miniseries starring Zoe Saldana was released by NBC in January of 2014. I do remember that coming out, but I didn't see it. There were also a couple of unofficial sequels and remakes. One was a Turkish film from 2016, and then there was, and that was a remake, then there was an unofficial sequel called Her Only Living Son from the anthology XX that came out in 2017. And I, I think that was one of the stronger parts of that anthology. I actually really liked that anthology, but so really to this day, there's no official theatrical remake of this film and I don't really think we need one okay so to set this one up and talk about it Rosemary's Baby was released in 1968 directed by Roman Polanski ran for 138 minutes the tagline is pray for Rosemary's Baby and the synopsis reads a young couple moves into an infamous New York apartment building to start a family Things become frightening as Rosemary begins to suspect her unborn baby isn't safe around their strange neighbors. 
So first and foremost, I think this is an incredible film. I'm going to lay my cards out on the table right away. Um, It's so well done. It's so well written and well directed. And the performances are just incredible. I mean, Pharaoh does such a good job. And first and foremost, like this entire film is about Rosemary and it's about the psychological damage that she goes through really by everyone around her including all of those that she trusts. And I'm sure if you haven't seen this one, I might get into some minor spoilers. I don't necessarily want to get into the ending or anything like that. But I will say that it's such a hopeless situation for Rosemary. I mean, there's really no one she can trust. And that's the thing is she trusts them for so long and just goes along with everything. And kind of just, you know, toes the line. If Even if something's weird, she might protest about it for a little bit and then goes back to just going along with everything that these people tell her to do from her doctor to her husband to her neighbors. And it's really upsetting watching this movie and kind of feeling for Rosemary and what she has to go through in all this. And that's my biggest takeaway is it's just so upsetting to have to watch her go through this and not really have any means or methods of pushing back like there's nothing she can do it seems like everything's out of her hands everything's out of her control so by the end of the film you're just kind of like you know what is there for her to do she fought back she put up a good fight but yeah just such a remarkable and I'm sure this has a lot to go to Ira Levin's novel that I haven't read but such a remarkable story and such a a new take on the and I say new take there hasn't really been that many takes on the Antichrist or you know the Satan's son we know the omen was one that goes in a very different direction and comes at it from a very different angle but and I don't know again we haven't had a ton of these and I think that's because you know these two high profile ones did it so well I'm really shocked, honestly, that we didn't have more of these Antichrist stories in like the 50s and 60s and stuff coming out of Hollywood, but or coming out of the, I don't know, somewhere. But it really, I guess at that time, the studios weren't uh, prepared to do anything that kind of transgressive. But hey, Rosemary's Baby and The Omen, I think, are one and two when it comes to that category. And maybe people are like, hey, they did it so well. Why would I keep retreading ground now? There's obviously other examples, one I can think of in particular, um, which is kind of like this. I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily is, but Sun from, uh, you know, a couple years back. Anyway, we're here to talk about Rosemary's Baby, though, and the cast is great. So getting back on point, uh, Mia Farrow plays this role so well. She seems so, you know, she's spirited and she has a will. But it's just kind of crushed and broken down. And she plays this great, like, seemingly paranoid and, you know, nervous woman. At times, I mean, she just has these scenes where she just keeps talking. When she's explaining and describing the situation to a doctor, she just kind of is continuously talking. And it seems like she's hardly taking a breath. And I love those those moments and those performances. And where she defies her husband a couple times and where she starts defying people because she does have that 
that will to fight back in her. And it's so great. I feel like she does several different emotions and styles great in this role. And I've always liked her in this role. This is really the main thing that I know her from. I, I know I've seen her in um, Be Kind Rewind, which was something that uh, Nathan and uh, Raul and I were talking about the other day. She is in that, and she's been in, of course, Woody Allen films, which I, I have no interest in Woody Allen films. But yeah, I think she's incredible in this, and it's a shame she didn't get a lot more higher-profile work. Then you have John Cassiavetz, who does an excellent job of playing that. He seems like he's right out of that time. He is the modern, you know, 60s man. And yeah, he's just... He's kind he plays it a little sleazy. He plays it a little uh, chauvinistic. And I think he does great in it. And you can really see a shift in him from the beginning of the film and as it kind of plays out and goes on. Then you have Ruth Gordon, who plays Minnie Castavet. And is she good in this role? It's she's an annoying character for sure. But I think that's the whole thing. Like I said earlier, she really does embody that nosy neighbor with that slightly stereotypical New York of this time period. Um, you know, she's got the, she's got the accent going on. She's got the, um, the overbearingness going on. She plays, I think a stereotype character, but she plays it so well. And then you have her husband who is, played by just the striking Sidney Blackmer. And this guy, you just truly believe when you find out stuff about him in the film, you have no problem believing it. He is such a believable character. He's more of this. I don't know if I'd say stoic, but he's definitely a mismatch for many in this film. And my, he is just so good and menacing, I think in his role a lot of the times. And it's that quiet menacing. It's not like he's coming straight out and putting fear into you, but he's just got that air about him. Then you've got the great Maurice Evans, who, you know, was in Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes. And he plays, you know, Rosemary's friend in this and is just, uh, I, I love the character of Hutch, even though he's not in the film too much, he's kind of in and out of it, but yeah, this cast from top to bottom is I don't usually talk about the cast and go on about the cast this long, but I think this cast is just incredible. I think there are a lot of the reason why this film, you know, why it's taken seriously and how it, you know, goes forward in the way it does. But anyway, I think the cast is excellent. And I think the atmosphere and the way this thing is shot and the pacing and everything is just phenomenal. I think that's a large part. This is a much quieter film. And, you know, I was talking about the dead films earlier with the over-the-top graphic violence and gore and everything. And then you got the flip side of this, which is a much more, you know, a subdued film. You're not going to see a lot of blood and guts. I don't know if you really see much of any. And you don't really get, I mean, I think there's some brief nudity and stuff, but mainly it's just more terrifying and unnerving than anything else. But as far as what this one did for the industry, I just think the psychological nature of this and something to a lesser extent, I mean, if you've seen Repulsion by Polanski, you know that he was delving into the same type of thing with getting into the uh, psyche of a woman. 
and really delving into when something breaks down the flip of the side of that, I think in Rosemary's baby, it's you've got someone who people are telling her she's breaking down and being crazy, which she's really not. So, yeah, I think this really set the bar for that type of film, that type of, for lack of a better term, like a gaslighting type thing, really set the tone, the bar for that. And as well as like the satanic cult movies, because honestly, it's probably one of the best, if not the best of that variety. And I think a lot of the ones that come after it, I don't really know that many things have tried to copy Rosemary's Baby. Unlike with something like The Exorcist, where there were a lot of ripoffs, or Halloween, where there were a lot of ripoffs, there weren't really that many that I can think of ripoffs to Rosemary's Baby. But it was just so, I feel like it's so influential, and I feel like you can see the DNA of that with, I think you can definitely see the ripples of that throughout the industry, especially the psychological part. I think... Polanski's you know psychological apartment trilogy which I haven't seen the tenant in a long time but I know that is my least favorite of the three uh, but still a solid movie but I think his original three horror films and horror thrillers really did a lot to influence the modern psychological film the thriller I don't want to use psychological thriller because that's such a buzz term but that's really what's going on. And yeah, I just think that this movie is so good. It's so well put together. The scene, you know, with the conceiving of Rosemary's baby is one of the most uh, famous, I think, in the film. One of the, a big one for horror fans. I think that's one of the most memorable scenes in a horror film, in my opinion, at least. And the best part of this is it's about a cult. It's about Satanism and all this other stuff. But... It's also just such a quiet film, like I said, and just focuses on the character study of things and how people are changing and how something, you know, a carrot dangled in front of you might change your whole look on life and kind of lead you down a certain path. I think the, I'm saying it all the time, but the mythology and the lore and the background behind this is so incredibly crafted. And again, that might be the credit to uh, Ira Levin, but it's just so well told and it's just, it's snuck in here and there. It's not thrown in your face all the time. I love that, you know, Hutch is telling them before they move in about, you know, that's building's got a long history and really to see the guy character transform from what he is in the beginning of the film to how he gets to the end of it and why he does it is just an incredible piece of filmmaking I could sit here and really go on about this all day because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. According to my episode I put out, I believe it's in my top 20, um, at least in my top 25. But Rosemary's Baby is near perfect. I think it's really my type of film where it gets into the psychological stuff. And you get, I mean, there is straight up horror in this for sure. The entire situation is just horrifying to picture yourself in a similar situation. You know, even if maybe it wouldn't be being pregnant, maybe it's, you know, having others make all the decisions for you and leading you down a certain direction or a path without you having any say or any way to really fight back against it. But I think Rosemary's Baby is exceptional. It's for sure one of my favorites of all time. I would give this a 10 out of 10. And based on what I saw from um, Twitter and Instagram reaction, 
a lot of people would too. A lot of other people would too. So yeah, this is definitely a must watch. If you haven't ever seen this one, you need to go out and watch it immediately. I think it definitely holds up. It's funny. I was watching this and my, um, I was at the end and, um, my, you know, soon to be four year old daughter scoots over because we were laying in bed and says like, Oh, what are you watching? And it was like, Oh, and you know, she has, I have to tell her the names of things or she's not satisfied. And then first comment she made was that looks old. And <laughs> which I thought was funny. And she started asking questions and I was like, okay, you got to stop that. I'm going to scoot over here and watch this myself now. But that ending though, just wraps up perfectly, I think. And uh, it's, it's such a crazy ending. I mean, if you don't expect that coming, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. And I love the, I'm not going to say the phrase, but there's a phrase that someone shouts out in the, uh, in the ending of this movie. And I always quote that one, although it's pretty risky to quote that, <laughs> that line. But if you pay attention, you can hear part of that line said earlier in the film. And there's also, if you look throughout it and knowing going through, and I'm sure many people know this as plenty of people, I'm sure have watched this several times. There's so many little pieces that if you rewatch it and you know what's going to happen at the end, you pick up on it and it's like, yeah, he was dropping the breadcrumbs throughout this entire film. There's things here or there. So this is, a, like I said, a near perfect movie and definitely check it out if you haven't. So happy 55th anniversary, Rosemary's Baby. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of Screaming Through the Ages. But before I go, I want to mention one other thing that I would ask for you to participate in if you can. Shortly after this episode drops, I'm going to be sending out links on my social media profiles to a survey that I'd ask if you could just take, you know, five, 10 minutes out of your day and help to uh, fill that out and give me some feedback on the show. I'm basically going to be asking you know, what do you think of certain formats and what you would like to see in the future? So I'd really appreciate it if you'd be able to fill one of those out for me and let me know what you want to see and what you're enjoying with the show. Other than that, on the next time out, it'll be a Screaming Chronicles episode and the last one until November with October coming up. And like I said earlier, I'll be covering folk horror throughout the month, so there won't be any traditional episodes. So next time out, you can look forward to some video game reviews. I'll be looking at Star Wars Jedi Survivor and Trails to Azure. I'll also be continuing my anime season reviews, and I'm up to the winter 2023, so I am in 2023 at this point. And I will be continuing my Alex de la Iglesia filmography, as I go through that with a couple more movies and I'm trying to figure out another longer movie segment. I'm not sure which one I'm going to go with yet, but there will be a longer movie piece in that episode. And finally, I know I'll be doing my journey through the vengeance trails box set, which are the spaghetti Westerns and looking at another one from that set. So that's everything you can look forward to next time. 
Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Screaming Ages and over on Instagram at Screaming Ages as well. You can join the Facebook group Screaming Through the Ages over there. And if you want to reach out to the show, you can email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. Again, always appreciate if you leave a review on the service of your choice. With all that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next dose of Screaming Through the Ages. 